What's up everybody, this is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking, brought to you by artofmagic.com. Our guest for this episode is Michael Feldman. You guys have already heard on the podcast, Michael is one of my oldest friends in magic. He's the first West Coast magician I ever met at my very first magic convention, MagicCon 2. We talk about how we met, we talk a lot about stand-up comedy and what magic can learn from comedy, what magicians can learn from stand-up comedians, about how to work the audience, about how to create material, subverting their expectations. It's a great conversation. We talk about creativity and creating magic. Uh, We talk a little bit about women in magic at the end. We talk about some of our favorite comedians, some of our favorite moments. It's great. This is a long one. We did it in the middle of the night. It was great. So fun. Michael is one of my dearest friends and one of my all-time favorite people, and I know you're going to love this episode. He's also one of the smartest people I've ever met, and he's just really fun to listen to. Michael has released two things on artofmagic.com, the Riffle Shuffle Action Palm and a quick pen trick he calls End for End. End for End is one of the first things I learned from DanandDave.com many years ago, and that's kind of how we met. I walked up to him and, well, you'll hear the rest of the story. Anyway, get into the episode. It's a great time. And you can use Feldman, MTP, all caps, one word, F-E-L-D-M-A-N-M-T-P, to get 20% off of Michael's routines on the site. If you haven't already, follow us on all the social media channels, sign up for the newsletter, at Magical Thinking Podcast and at Treasury of Wonder, as well as Facebook. You can find us by searching Art of Magic. All right, I really appreciate you guys, and I hope you had a very happy new year. I'm excited for what 2017 has in store, and we've got some great episodes coming up. All right, guys, this is Michael Feldman. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm just pointing out that we have both a leather case for the microphone cords and a screw-apart brass fountain pen. You don't have the Japanese Traveler Journal, though. No, I don't. This was also free. This was a gift. This was a gift. The leather thing was a gift. So if you just put out fanciness to the world, does fanciness come to you? Yes. Mm. It's good to know. (laughs) Yes, that's true. It's a good way to do it. It is. Should we tell them (laughs) that my... Peacoat that I'm wearing right now was made on Savile Row in England, too. <laughs> we should. That seems like a good plan. Okay. <laughs> How did we meet, Michael? I think we met at MagicCon, right? Yeah. Uh, the second one. The, se- the second MagicCon. Yep. And other than that, I don't remember. I remember <laughs> I remember you coming up. Um, we, we chatted a lot at that convention. Yeah. Well, because... You- I followed you around the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) There is some truth to that. Yeah. Uh, And then uh, I remember actually the next Magic Con and a couple of the other conventions I came up to you and was like, hey, this is the thing that I'm working on. Does it it fool you and and who am I going to (laughs) show? And you would would drag me around and uh, find me people who wanted to see new work, which was useful. I, yeah, I, like... If I had not made you show the traveler routine to about 30 people at the second Magic Con when we met, we probably would not be friends and I would not be sitting here right that, now. That's so, that is, on the other hand, uh, if you had not made me show the, um, 
signature card, the the trick that where I, that involves acting where I pretend I didn't, where I pretend I messed up. Yeah. Uh, if you hadn't made me show that to a bunch of people, it wouldn't be a staple in my repertoire right now. It would just be one of those sort of fun toy routines that I used, that I do on my own. But now it's it's in my show. I love that trick so much. Okay, so here's what I remember. I remember going to the second Magicon and it being my my first convention. And I went with. Uh, my magic mentor from St. Louis and my dad came and so I was kind of just really hanging out with those guys and my magic mentor from St. Louis was he's like a middle aged man so I didn't really know anybody my age but I saw you and I was like that's Michael Feldman I love his routine on DanandDave.com I'm going to go up and talk to him and show him this horrible thing that I do (laughs) do you remember the I I have no idea what you You do I walked up and I was like hi my name's Elliot I'm a fan of yours. And you were like, that's weird. <laughs> and I was like... You're certainly one of the first people to have done that to me, ever. Great. I'm glad. So it was I, true. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I came from a place where there were, weren't magicians. And so, like, you were published and I learned your trick. And so, like, to me, you were no different than Dan and Dave or... Die Vernon. I was like, I've studied this guy's material. And over time, you've learned the difference. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I, I went up to you and I was like, here's this thing that I'm working on. I've got this thing that I created. you know." And you were like, okay, it's not very good. Uh, here's why. And I was like, okay, thanks. And then you were like, here, I'll show you something. And you showed me the Travis. And I was like, oh my god, this is amazing. And you were like, yeah, I haven't really showed it to anybody. And so I just, like, dragged you around. I followed you around and then was like, oh, Michael's got this great trick he's working on and made you show, like, Lance Pierce and Jared Goff. That's like, right. <laughs> and no, but at least the at least the routine is easy. Yeah, comparatively. It, it, it doesn't involve seven different palms and dropping single cards <laughs> off of the back of a stack of palmed cards. And <laughs> No, it does. It involves all of those things. It does. So it got me practice, which is good. Yeah. No, th- I mean, the other thing there is, uh, you know, we all see a ton of terrible magic at magic conventions. Yeah. Right? We all see a bunch of good magic. We all see a bunch of terrible magic. And a thing that I've, has always bothered me is that a lot of people have a tendency to do one of two things in the face of bad magic. Uh-huh. One is to walk away and <laughs> not say anything. And the other is to say, oh, yeah, no, that was good. I, I, I like that. That was, that was interesting. Yeah. And I think both of those are really detrimental to magic as, as a whole. Yeah. Like, on the one hand, if you just walk away, you're destroying some young <laughs> up-and-coming magician's heart, just sort of, okay, well, he totally doesn't care about me at all. Yeah. Uh, which may or may not be true, but it's not like a that nice thing to do. That also happened to me at the second Magic Con. By me? Not by you. Oh, okay. No, no. I hope not. No, I walked up to... It was after somebody who was lecturing called out this magician as having something really good. Mm. And I walked up to he and another very well-known magician, and I was like, would you mind if I, I saw the thing that the guy talked about? And the guy who wasn't the guy that was called out was like, fuck off, kid. <laughs> yeah, look, so there's the, there's the other piece of it, which is that, that I've learned over a long time in Magic, which is that some of my best friends in the world I see 
twice a year at MagicCon <laughs> and Fectors, right? Yeah. Or or whatever it is. And so there are, it's definitely true that sometimes I just want to hang with my friend yeah. uh, who I don't get to see otherwise. And someone will come up and want to see whatever, whoever, the material of whoever I'm hanging out with. Yeah. Uh, but I think you still got to... I think we all still have a responsibility at some point of trying to make magic better. Yes. Uh, and handling that well. And you can always go find a restaurant that no one knows where you are. And all the all the really household name magicians at every magic convention will find a restaurant that is not four feet from the hotel. And, yeah. And, and can do it that way, and that's fine. Uh, but, I, but I really think, and this is something that in San Francisco we do, a, I think, a reasonably good job of, which is not just saying, oh, yeah, man, that was good, I like that, when it's terrible. Uh, and also not having the Di Vernon sort of like, that's horrible, give up magic. I don't, <laughs> clearly I do a Di Vernon impression. Uh, <laughs> we, can, yeah, we can do Jared. Jared will come on and do the Di Vernon impression for me, and it'll be great. Yeah. Uh, but in San Francisco, or the Bay Area, we've got the Magic Garage, where people actually, every week, will run new material and we'll all sit around with a notepad and take notes and, and give legitimately constructive criticism. This was bad, and here's how to fix it. Or this was bad, and here's why. Not, that sucked. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, try, I try really hard to, for whenever anyone shows me something, to say, either, that blew me away, I have no idea how you did that, and I hate you now, and I <laughs> will never stop thinking about the thing you just showed me. But if it's short of that to sort of say, uh, here are my thoughts on it. Yeah. And obviously, there's a wide range there. So I was just recently at the Magic Castle uh, to see Shane Cobalt perform. And uh, I've known Shane for a while from Toronto. And it, it's one of the situations where I sat through the show next to my brother, who is not a magician, uh -huh. but who is impossible to fool. Like, he is my go-to whetstone for magic tricks if if it will fool him it will fool every magician and every layman i come across yeah uh he's got a great eye and when we walked out of the show he said hey i don't know what you want to do like but i was sitting on the edge and here where he had angle problems and here is a thing that like i could sort of see glinting off of the lights and here is a another thing all of which were sort of astute observations and, and then the question is uh, in the middle of someone's run at the castle, do you call them up and tell them there are problems? Yeah. Or do you let it slide because you don't want to kill their momentum? Yeah. Uh, both of which are really important things. And different magicians take it differently. Yes. Right? Like, if it's someone who comes up to me and says, hey, I want to show you this thing, what do you think? Then obviously I want to be nice about it. Yeah. But if it's, like, A, if it's someone I admire and look up to, or B, if it's someone... Uh, who's in the middle of a run at the castle or in the in the middle of a run of shows? Yeah, I don't want to uh, get in the middle of that. Yeah, but I was actually I, I texted Shane, and, uh, said, "Hey, I'm not gonna like ruin your uh, flow, but like my brother had thoughts. If you want to hear them, let me know. Otherwise, I'll talk to you at the end of the week, and you'll and we can see where it goes from there." Yeah. But he called me up and uh, and we talked about it for like 45 minutes and sort of brainstormed ways of solving the different problems, and he actually liked my brother's comments a lot. A couple of things he was able to fix for the next night, and a couple of things he sort of said, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how to fix that, and I've been working on it for two years. Um, so it's it's one of those things, but I think 
if you if you have thoughts yeah. about how to improve something and someone's receptive to hearing it, that's how that's how we improve magic. And if you just say, "Yeah, man, you did a great job," then we're all gonna stagnate. Yeah, when somebody walks up to you and they show you something and they don't ask you about your thoughts, how do you handle that? I ask. Yeah. What do you yeah. say? Oh, I say. Uh, I find something to compliment about it. Yeah. Uh, something legitimate to compliment about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will say, hey, do you want thoughts on that or not? And if they say no, then I say, fine. Uh, sometimes I will still say, I think this is the problem. Like, it, it, like if there's if there's something like a glaring error, yeah. I will say, sure. this is the problem. Sometimes, uh, and I can think of some notable points, but this is more like... So if someone genuinely comes up to me and wants to show me something, I'll try to say, hey, do you want thoughts? And if they don't want thoughts, um, I'll talk about it with them. Or I'll just show them something of my own or show them something that I've learned that I think is a technique or a philosophy that will improve their trick, not as a direct comment to what they've shown me, but just to share something back Yeah. and something that I think could improve them. Then there are the cases of the trolls. And, you know, people I know are sort of it sounds bad to say that they're beyond help, but there are some people who are beyond help. Like, and, and usually it's not because they're incapable. Usually it's because they just refuse to listen. Yeah. Uh, and then sometimes I will, sometimes for my own fun or just to be mean, will uh, (laughs) will like take them through the Socratic method of like, Oh, does this fool people? And what do people think when you do this technique? And what, what do people think when you, hover a card above the spread and pretend as if you're there's no card in your hand and you push a card out of the spread and it, it's clearly coming from on top of the spread and not inside it right like uh, and that happens too and that that's unfortunate I try to avoid that situation but it happened at, in it has happened in San Francisco as well at the Magic Garage where you know Rahul and I there was a night where we spent like two hours with someone trying to walk them through the thought process of the character that they had chosen for a technique and the tricks that they were doing and it was clear at some point that he just he not not even that he didn't want to listen but he just sort of didn't know how to uh-huh. uh, that he had sketched three or four notes but didn't realize that there were pieces missing in between and uh, didn't understand how to f- how to fill them in uh, even on questioning at that point. I just was this someone that was new up. in magic, or was this someone that had been doing it for a no, while? No, he's been and... doing it for a while. Uh, not, I mean, he, he, I don't I don't think he's 10 or 15 years into magic, but, you know, he's been doing it for a couple, a couple of years. It's just, yeah. I, you have to come to magic with a learning mentality, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I, one of my favorite quotes I've ever heard is... Uh, not even a quote because I don't think I'll get it right but is something like successful people thrive on negative feedback unsuccessful thrive unsuccessful people thrive on positive feedback uh-huh. and it it's true of every person who's really successful as a magician that I know most of them at least and it's certainly true of every successful lawyer I know yeah um, because I'm a lawyer for those who don't know and Everyone I know who's a really successful lawyer has neuroses about getting better and just fixates on the things that they do wrong yeah. and beg people to tell them how to improve. And that's how people get to be really good lawyers. And it's how people, most people get to be really good magicians as well. Uh, so I, 
I think you have to learn to come to whatever hobby or whatever profession or whatever art or craft or whatever it is you're doing with that mentality of just I'm I'm never no one will ever be perfect everyone is going to keep improving and how do I make this better even if it is something I've been doing for 20 years yeah is that something that you bring to magic for yourself from being a lawyer no that's something that I bring to magic being a neurotic Jew uh, <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I, I I grew up obsessing about my flaws, uh, yeah, and not not always in an unhealthy way, but uh, I I have always wanted to be the best at whatever it is I do, and I get really frustrated when I'm not, yeah. Uh, and luckily, most of my hobbies swirl around the same kinds of things. I just like to be on stage, so I've I've been a singer, I've been an actor, I've been an improviser. Uh, done some sketch comedy and, and whenever I've fallen short uh, it has been the frustration at seeing people who are better than I am that has driven me to go forward sure. and every once in a while I will see someone who is so much better than I am that I get as my friend Betsy says uh, inspired to the couch and, <laughs> and just stop working on everything entirely but for the most part uh, you know, I, I try to see people who are better than I am and have it inspire me that I just need to work harder yeah, uh, and sometimes in magic that's hard because I, uh, I, you know, I've, I'm at a point where most of the people I'm really looking up to in a in a meaningful way are full timers. Yeah, and you know, people who can sit and drill techniques or can sit and brainstorm uh, show ideas and presentational ideas and theatrical presentations and and things like that for for much longer than I can. Yeah. Uh, but it's still inspiring to see that and try to get as close to that as I can with the time that I have. Yeah. Inspired to the couch. Inspired to the couch is a great, great quote. I have my friend Betsy, who is also a lawyer and who produced the law school musical with me when we were in law school. Yes, we are huge nerds. Uh, <laughs> had a blog for a while called Functional Adult. Which was, which was uh, hastily sketched on, on yellow-lined legal pads uh, and had a, a, a number of gems like that. And I think that she's... I think she's since had a kid, so time is no longer her friend. So I don't think she's updating the blog anymore, but it was, yeah. always, it was always funny, and she, she similarly has... Uh, a creative drive that it is difficult to do uh, that is that is difficult to tap into as a lawyer and especially now that she has a kid yeah um how does being a lawyer affect your magic presentationally or what are the common things in your presentations and how you approach your day job cuz i, I yeah, just I, wonder yeah i think that it's mostly a common source yeah that I am a lawyer because I like learning and logic and parsing things finer than anyone else does yeah. uh, and working harder than anyone else does to win. Uh, my People ask me why I became a lawyer and I tell a story that I won't go into now because it's probably longer than it's necessary. But We're not in a hurry. Okay, fine. I'll tell the story. Good. So, um, <laughs> but, but the... 
No, I'll just tell the full story. So when I was in college, yes. I was in an acapella group because see previous comment about being a nerd. Yeah. And do you want to see the thing I wrote down? Book of Mormon. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do it at so, the end. That's good. I think that's perfect. Okay. <laughs> so, anyway, in, uh, in college, <laughs> I joined an acapella group because, see, for see aforementioned comment, I'm a nerd. And I was business manager my junior year, so I, or my, sorry, my sophomore year, so I was in charge of advertising for all of our shows and our auditions, specifically at the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. And we What's always... What's your acapella group name? Uh, we were called Fleet Street. It was not, in fact, a musical pun, unlike every other acapella group in the world. Uh, it comes from the Sondheim musical Demon Barber of Fleet Street, Sweeney Todd, because we started as the sort of uh, ugly stepchild of the established acapella group of at Stanford, and we sang sort of off-kilt, off-color, comedy, totally inappropriate, okay. lyric barbershop, and so they ended up naming themselves Fleet Street after Demon Barber Fleet Street, because Demon Barber yeah, yeah. made sort of enough sense that it became the name. Sure. Uh, but, so, so we advertised auditions by hanging this giant banner outside the main plaza at Stanford, and the not the dean of students, but the, the person who was in charge of student activities came out and said, hey, your banner is too big, you can't hang that here. And I said, we've been hanging, that's literally the banner that I pulled out of our closet that we've been hanging for the last six years. What's wrong with it now? He said, oh, well, we've changed the rules. Uh, you can't hang that size banner here anymore. And I said, okay, well, where are the rules? I've never seen these before. You've never sent them out. And he said, okay, well, here's the website. Yeah. And so I went and I looked at the website and I read every word of the website and I realized that there were rules about what the banner could say and where it could be and how big it could be yeah. our banner was too big um, and how you could hang it but there were no rules about how many banners you could hang so that <laughs> night a bunch of us went out and cut Just the cut banner it. in half and then hung it back up so it looked exactly the same but was now technically two banners and stayed up for the rest of the auditions period <laughs> and that is why I became a lawyer not not that moment specifically, but I I love I love winning because I worked harder. Yeah. And I mean I love winning because I'm right. That's always useful and wonderful and good, right? Like every, everyone li- everyone likes to win the argument because they turned because it, it turned out they were right. Yeah. But I also I like uh, I like winning because I worked harder. Yeah. And that is a common thread with magic. Do you before you get into that? Do you allow yourself to win? Because you know you can work harder, even though you might not be right, or you you know you're not right. It's a, I mean that depends, right? Like I'm as a lawyer, I'm hired by a client to, to win a case, so I will I will work. <laughs> I, to I win wasn't the case. talking about professionally uh, in that context. Yeah, yeah, you know, of course, uh, yeah. It, but in in outside of that, it's very different. Outside of that, um, sometimes I'll try to win an argument because. I just I know You'd I can. Want to shame the person. Yeah, yeah or just, or, just, or just because I want to win the argument and yeah. and that and it's what I do professionally, so I've I've honed that skill fairly well. But you know, frequently there's a greater good and yeah. I I try to if I if I find out that I'm wrong. Yeah. See, this is the thing that I tell people all the time. Yes. The quickest, the fastest way to lose credibility mm-hmm. in law or in with your friends or with anyone 
is to, the moment it's obvious you're wrong, if you dig in your heels, you've lost all credibility. And I try very hard to identify the moment where it's clear that I am wrong and acknowledge that I am wrong. Yes, me too. Uh, and That's people, important. people actually find this strangely frustrating uh, <laughs> because I point this out in other people that, look, it's clear that you are wrong. You know that you're wrong. I know that you're wrong, but you're not admitting it yet, and you're like that. That will lose you all credibility. And they always say, "Well, we never fight about this when, when you're wrong about something." I say, "Yeah, that's because I when I'm wrong, I say, oh yeah, it looks like I'm wrong.' This is what I need. I need to keep that in my pocket. Yeah, and that's and that's hard to do. Yeah, I mean, I spent, I spent a lot of high school and a lot of college losing a lot of friends because I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, and I have learned that. In, through college and who and humbled you? College. There had um, to be a moment. My acapella group. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was I was business manager my sophomore year, and I ruled with an iron fist. I didn't I didn't really rule with an iron fist. I was pretty um, I was pretty open to what other people wanted to do for the most part. But once I made a decision, I stuck to it and dug my heels in, whether or not it really made sense past that, because it was the vision I could see and it was the thing that I wanted to do, and it and it just. At that point, I, I wasn't capable of listening to what other people wanted to do, like like we were talking about before. I just I couldn't. I wasn't in a place to listen. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I lost a lot of friends that year. Mm-hmm. I I mean I came back to the group the next year, uh, not in a leadership position, and uh, and it was hard, uh, like sort of politically within the group because I didn't get there were people I didn't get along with because I had I had. Uh, burned bridges yeah and it was a lesson learned the hard way there and i i have tried to be better about it since then uh i have a mentality that has led me to be a lawyer and i like to argue and i like to parse and i like (laughs) to find the right answer yeah uh, which is not always what other people like to do and i i learn best by arguing i learn best by when someone tells me i'm wrong in magic especially uh, when i show someone a trick and they say that sucks uh, i will say no it doesn't and here's why and I'm not refusing to listen. I am. I'm. You want them to explain it to you so you understand. Yeah, I want them to convince me otherwise. You and have I'm, to work through it. And I am open yeah. to being convinced otherwise. But I want to lay, I want to lay out my thinking and then hear their thinking and then decide. Yeah. Um. And not everyone works that way, and that that pisses a lot of people off. Yeah. And so I try to be sensitive to that, but it is the way I work best. So I tend to I tend to do it when I'm trying to improve myself, no matter what. Yeah. Um. And sometimes I'm better about it, and sometimes I'm less good about it when I'm trying to help other people. But it's, uh, I mean, that's that's the drive for me is trying to figure out how to do that. And there's a where to draw the line on doing it is a the hard lesson learned during college. Yeah. Did you? How did you get into magic? Was there? Were you suffering from some sort of internal thing, or? <laughs> like, no, I don't well, think because it's like in comedy, you know, they they even talk about it, and there's a reference to it in Thirty Rock. Like as a child, you had to wear a corrected boot, so now you're in comedy, right? right. Like, uh, the... No, I think that's right. Um, there is, I think about this sometimes. There's there like weird things that I always wished about myself that don't really make any sense. Like what? Um, I don't ever wish on myself a bad childhood because I had a wonderful childhood. Uh, but you know, people say you know you need to have a bad childhood to be a good comedian. Yeah, uh, and. To some extent, it, it uh, they're not wrong. <laughs> they're not wrong, and it, and it carries over uh, to to magic somewhat. And you know, Francis Minotti, who I have the utmost respect for, is a phenomenal magician. Uh, told me once that 
discomfort is the en- or sorry uh, comfort is the enemy of creativity mm-hmm. that you need to be uncomfortable to find good solutions and that's one of those I think that's why uh, comedians and magicians who have a hard time of it yeah. do a better job because they're just better at problem solving in that way and I've always thought I mean I've always sort of wished that I was left-handed because like left-handed is associated with better creativity and yeah. I know that that doesn't act, it wouldn't actually make me more creative to be left-handed but I've always sort of wanted that piece of identity yeah because uh, it's because it's tied to creativity and I don't have it and I like I had a nice childhood and that isn't why I'm a magician yeah no I got into magic me too though y- yeah I had a nice childhood I don't remember why I got into magic really you re- really don't remember yeah, I really don't remember I mean for me it's obvious I mean I grew up wanting to be a performer. There I, there are pictures of me that my parents have from when I was four years old on their vacation at Club Med on a stage with a microphone oh my lip-syncing to a the band. Same person. It's insane. Okay. Do you also have this story? I also have that story. Uh, except I wasn't lip-syncing to a band. I was pretending to be David Letterman doing a monologue. Right, exactly. Yeah, same, yeah. same, same, same idea. Right. And so I just I tried to do every piece of performance... I got my hands on. I, I sang, I danced, I acted, I did comedy, I beatboxed, I sang a cappella, I, <laughs> uh, I did magic, I juggled. I, if it put me on a stage, I tried it, and it yeah. just happens to be that magic is what stuck with me. Yeah. Magic is what I became most fascinated by and, uh-huh. and wanted to keep doing more than most of the other things I was doing. Uh, but I, I got into magic the same way I think a lot of people do, which is that I saw a magician. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was this restaurant in San Diego called Carlos, Carlos Murphy's. It was a mediocre Mexican restaurant uh, that there was a magician named Keith Boudreaux, and he was awesome. He did contact juggling when, when I walked in, and then he would wander around, and I remember him doing uh, Paul Harris's Immaculate Connection. I didn't obviously know the name of it at the time, but uh, he did Paul Harris's Immaculate Connection. And... I asked him to teach me, and he said no. Uh, but he showed me where Brad. He told me where Brad Burtz was. Brad Burtz, the magic shop in San Diego. Uh-huh. He sent me there, and I said, "Hey, Keith Boudreaux sent me. What should I buy?" And I'm pretty sure the. F- I'm almost positive, the first things I bought at Brad Burtz Magic Shop were Rune Klon's three pieces of silver, <laughs> and uh, Paul Cummins up in smoke, and. Paul Harris's The Art of Astonishment Volume 2 because it had Immaculate Connections in it. Yeah. Uh, and Keith Rougeau had told me what book it was in. Yeah. Uh, which I think, which by the way, I think was one of the nicest things he ever could have done for me, which, which was not show me how it was done, but tell me where I could buy the book that had it. Yeah. So that uh, I would go and find the book and learn. Yeah. Uh, and from there, I just, you know, uh, as I say fairly frequently, you know, every boy certainly I think uh, gets a magic kit when they're a, a kid or sees a magician and gets obsessed and uh, you know a lot of girls as well but we still live in a society that has a lot of we're gonna talk uh, about <laughs> we still live in a society that has that has uh, entrenched gender roles so it's certainly true of, of young boys and, and uh, less true for young girls but I, I found this magician and some people stick with magic and perform for more and more sophisticated audiences and do more and more sophisticated tricks, and others of us go outside and play in the sun, and I wasn't one of those. So uh, <laughs> I, I kept doing magic. And that, yeah. I mean, 
that really is the long and short of it. Why did that? Do you know why it stuck? Is it because it is? So I have a story that I project backwards on myself, and I don't know that it's actually true. It's become true. Exactly. Um, but I don't know if it tr- was true in the beginning, yeah. which is that when I was really young, when I was four, three, um, my verbal skills were so much more advanced than my manual dexterity skills. I could, I could speak well and I could read at a very young age, but I couldn't hold a crayon and write. Yeah. And my parents were worried about that, so they... They sent me to an occupational therapist for a year. I actually started preschool a year late because I was doing occupational therapy. And uh, it was hard. And since then, mastering dexterous things has been fascinating to me uh, purely because I couldn't do it before. Mm -hmm. And magic is something that allowed me to be on stage and perform and get my point of view across. and also learn difficult techniques. And I've always done difficult work. I mean, I think I work much harder in terms of sleight of hand than most, and certainly much harder than I need to. I mean, it's possible to do very powerful powerful magic without doing the techniques that I'm trying to do in front of real paying audiences. But I, I love doing it. Yeah. I, I, and you know, Dennis Bear said in his, I think it's in his second handcrafted card magic, at some point, if this is your job or this is your hobby, uh, if you're not entertaining yourself, then why aren't you do why are you doing it? Yeah. And I, I subscribe to that wholeheartedly. If if I'm not having fun performing for my audiences, then why am I doing it? And I, I love doing difficult stuff. And so I think a big reason that magic stuck with me is that uh it was difficult to learn. And this is true not just of the techniques themselves, but of the presentations. I mean, I didn't get to... We were talking about this before. The other thing that is that comes from the common source of, of why I ended up being a lawyer is uh, my presentational style, which is that I am uh, very open about the fact that it's sleight of hand and very in-your-face about it, and I've never... and never claim magic except <laughs> as a tongue-in-cheek thing, and I... Will you please... Will you please burn the bit that is my favorite thing in the world? If I snap it in wave line? Yeah. Yeah, okay. You don't have to do it right now, but... Okay. Uh, so, but but yeah, I, I'm aggressively sort of in your face about the fact that what I'm doing is not sleight of hand. Yeah. Um, I have my, the line that I work into every show, which is not just a snap and wave line, but the line I actually work into every show is, um, so you probably think I'm doing some weird sneaky sleight of handy shit. I am. It's exactly what I'm doing. I am doing weird sneaky sleight of handy shit. But now I'm going to prove to you that I'm not using weird sneaky sleight of handy shit, even though I have admitted to you that I'm using weird sneaky sleight of handy shit, and I'm going to prove it to you by using weird sneaky sleight of handy shit. It's a mystery wrapped in a conundrum, wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in bacon. Uh, and that's that's a big part of my character, that, like, I, you know, obviously it's trickery. Yeah. Um, well, that, just that whole little... Uh, it's not a sentence. Is it? We'll call it a paragraph. Sure. That whole paragraph conveys so much about your character. First of all, you can speak very quickly in rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it counts as a rhyme when you say the same word, but sure. Okay. Uh, in in tricky tongue twisting language, which then says, "I'm smart. I can speak well. I'm ahead of you. Try to keep up." 
this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's and a, not it's in a, a slick con man way, but like a no. And it's it's a it's a I'm going to do some things that are for you that are smart. I'm not going to pull my punches. Mm-hmm. I want you to come along with me. Mm-hmm. This is not a challenge. This we are on the same team. Yeah. Um, because I I think that claiming magic powers has two really bad effects. One is that many many people find it patronizing. Yes. Um. It depends on your venue. It depends on your audience. The context. But in San Francisco, man, <laughs> people are smart and they get it, and it's mostly populated with engineers. And yeah. if you say I've got magic, they just turn off. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and people find it patronizing when you say, uh, "I'm now going to show you this box that my grandfather had that has magical properties that has been handed down to me through the generations." Like, no, you haven't. Like, why are you doing that? Yeah. And. Uh, so I, I think that claiming magic powers has that really bad problem. Yeah. The other is that uh, it, it, besides people feeling patronized, it diminishes the work that you do as a magician. I mean, you work hard to make this interesting, and if you actually had magic powers and it was if it was trivial to you, then why why should people care? Yeah. Uh, so I think people appreciate. The, the skill that's there and actually the honesty of it too yeah and so this is actually another thing that I want to say is that I get I get shit um especially at, at the magic garage here in the bay area about cursing when I do magic yeah and there and the, you know in that in that little paragraph that I had uh you say shit I say shit like times. seven times right yeah. and I I actually it's it's conscious and it is deliberate yes and it is because for most people, if you don't curse, that is a wall that you've put up that is artificial that shows that you are presenting to someone. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a fourth wall, you know, the theatrical fourth wall, when you are four feet from someone or when you're one foot from someone. And when you... The first time that I say fuck in a show... <laughs> everyone drops their guard and is like, okay, well, this is just a guy. They feel it, yeah. And it's much easier to connect with people when their hackles are not up. And <laughs> yes, I just used the word hackles. You've given uh, them permission yeah. at that point. When well, you say I, fuck, I actually, I actually don't even think everybody it's can them exhale. Per- I mean, yeah, but I don't even think it's permission. I think that everyone walks in, especially at a formal show. Like, I do this early on in a formal show. Yeah. Uh, in a formal show... I'm on a stage, and they're in seats, and that's so different, uh, and is formal because every people dress up to go to the, some people dress up to go to the theater still, yeah. and uh, you know there's a courtesy about not being loud in the seats and not speaking out and not making noise when you go to the theater, and that's because you're prepared to see a presentation on the stage that is that is a thing that is set and done and has nothing to do with you sitting in the seats. And the first time that you say fuck or curse in any way in the, in a theater, uh, people lose the sense that what you're seeing is practiced and, uh, and a, a formal artificial presentation, and they start to see you as like the guy on stage who happens to be on stage, and they're much more likely... I find that they are much more likely con- to connect with me in a in a meaningful way as an audience or as an individual. Yeah. If uh, if they don't think that I'm artificially putting on a presentation. 
How do you go about building an audience? Because you love comedy. I do. And I love comedy. It's true. And I hear comedians talk about how people come into a room and the comic's job is to make them into an audience. They have to merge into a group that is acting and reacting in real time against the comedian as a single entity. Yeah. um, I, and just even before getting into that, I think that magicians should learn a lot from comedians, and we don't. I could kiss you. Uh, (laughs) And and I, you, Elliot. (laughs) No, seriously, though, like, I... um, Comedy is the other performing art where there's a person on the stage talking directly to the audience uh, where there's no fourth wall and it's a conversation with it's a conversation directly with the audience and not a formalized fictional theatrical play I mean there's other there's some other things like that but not not a lot Uh, and I think there is a reason that there are comedy clubs many of them in every city around the country uh and there are not magic clubs in every city around the country. What is the reason? Uh, one is the comedians get how to reach out to an audience and perform with them, to them, and build them into an audience, and magicians don't. I think the other thing is that we have, we as magicians have built, uh, have, have made ourselves interchangeable. Uh-huh. We are, uh, you know, comedian. if you walk into a comedy club, uh, you think that when that person gets on stage and tells jokes that they wrote those jokes. Yeah. No one walks into a comedy club and says, oh, that's an interesting presentation for that joke. Yeah. Right? That person wrote those jokes. Now, sometimes you may be wrong, right? There's lots of people who steal jokes out yeah. there. And there um, are also hack jokes. And there's, and there's hack jokes that people use in stand-up comedy clubs. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. But when you walk into... But there's a... But, but audiences walk into a comedy club ready to believe that the person on stage wrote that material and that it's original to that person. Yeah. And audiences walk into a magic show thinking that all magicians do the same seven tricks. And the reason that audiences think that magicians do the same seven tricks is that magicians do the same seven tricks. <laughs> I mean, like, my favorite example of this is that at a magic banquet for a, a, a organization that I am a part of, we hired two well-known magicians, well-respected magicians to come in and perform at our banquet. Yeah. And they did the same, literally two of the three tricks that each of them did were the same. Yeah. And that's mind-boggling to me. Like, how, how are we hiring prominent, respected magicians who, A, have exactly the same trick in their staple repertoire, and B, didn't coordinate with each other as to what they were going to perform knowing that they were going to be on the same bill. And comedians do that. Yeah. I mean, comedians know each other's material. Comedians talk before shows. Uh, I mean, when someone, when a, when a headliner is figuring out who to open for them, they think about where the crossover is in, in the material that they do. And that's just something magicians don't think about. Now, look, it's hard in magic because in magic, you have to write the joke and the mechanics that make the joke work. Yeah. Right? And, and comedians don't have... Most comedians don't have to uh, worry about mechanics in the same way that magicians do. Yeah. Some, like, my favorite comedian, Bo Burnham, absolutely does because he has to write a song under the jokes, right? But, yeah. uh, but for the most part, you write the joke, 
it's text, it's funny, you present yeah. it, it's great. Uh, but magicians have to work on it. Yeah. And, and that's hard, and I get that. But people don't work on it, and then they use the fact that it's hard as a crutch. Uh, and I'm guilty of it sometimes, too. I mean, I do tricks that are in the common repertoire. But I try, it, but I try to make those ones look different if I can. Um, and it's usually not hard to make them look different. I mean, you can do... Uh, you can do a, 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 an out-of-this-world routine yeah, and make it look pretty different than anyone else's out-of-this-world routine. I mean, the fundamental premise is the same, but there's lots of ways for people to separate cards. You can do it you separating one color and the other person separating one color. You can do it where they separate both colors. You can do it partial deck, full deck. I mean, there's... And some of those differences are smaller than others, but you can make the... You can make it look different than the guy they saw yesterday. Yeah. And a lot of people just don't try. And I think that it's really important that we do try. Uh, your actual question was, how do I build an audience? And, yeah. Uh, that's hard. I, I don't have a good answer to that. Yeah. Uh, the, the biggest thing I've thought about is what we've already talked about, which is that I say fuck in the first five minutes of my, sh- of my stand-up show. Yeah. Uh, and people people see me as a person and not as a performer anymore and they're willing to come along with me. Uh, well, that's that's another thing that I think is something that's such a valuable lesson that can be learned from comedy, which is that it is just a guy... You know, like, fuck everybody that wears a sparkly coat when they do magic. Because you yes. go to a comedy club and those people, a lot of them are wearing t-shirt and jeans. Most of them are wearing t-shirt and jeans. Yeah, absolutely. Jeans, you know, I perform in jeans when I do my stand-up show. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I wear I I wear jeans and a blazer. Yeah, because uh, I want to look nice. But I I wear jeans yeah. and I don't wear a tie. I unbuttoned collar, and I look like I I look like a guy who you would see walking down the street. Yeah, uh, and I I've always thought that if you wear a sparkly tie or if you wear playing cards on your vest. Uh, you are the you are to magic as clowns are to comedy, and not like a good clown because there are good clowns. Yeah, like you are like a brightly colored giant red nose, frilly wig, size fifteen shoe, birthday like, clown, birthday clown. Yeah. Uh, it, it, not to shit on people out there that are listening that are birthday clowns, but you get what we're saying. It it is. It's it's not because look, clowning is its own art, right? Yes. That that exists, yeah. but it's not it's not stand up. Yeah, and if you go out on stage and do try to do stand up, and in fact you do a birthday clown routine. Yeah, that's the same thing as if you walk out on stage wearing a playing card vest or a sparkly tie. Like you are, you are creating very very clear signals to the audience not to take you seriously. Yeah. And if you get out there and you talk to the audience like a person, they're much more likely to come along with you. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's true in comedy. It's true in magic. Uh, it's one of the things I, the, one of the reasons I, I'm very open about the fact that things I do are sleight of hand and that I don't ever claim magic powers is because it's, it's patronizing in the same way that if you see a comedian tell a heartfelt funny story and at some point it becomes just too impossible to believe yeah you stop listening 
and you no longer acknowledge their story, you're like, that's not what happened. I just don't believe you anymore. And comedians can get away with that when they're self-referential, right? They can say, um, and it's at this point in my story when you no longer believe me, and then everyone will laugh at that joke, and then they can keep going, yeah. right? And you can do that in magic, too, mm-hmm. where you claim to have magic powers, or you do a bunch of sleight of hand, and then for one moment you say, oh, everything else was sleight of hand, but this... This is the power I was born with. Then, like, now you're being self-referential, and they think <laughs> yeah. it's funny, and they come along with you, and they're no... Or, you know, I do a trick... I use... Um, Some people say it's a gift. It's really more of a burden. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, you can, And you can do that line, and then it's yeah. funny, and people will come along with the fiction of that because they they know you're not being a jerk and trying to be patronizing. Yeah. Uh, I, I use... Um, I use I Unlock Your Mind, the iPhone trick where you unlock the phone, which I think I can publicized slightly more widely now since it no longer works. It's no longer the right screen for an iPhone. Yeah. It's now out of date. Whoever is in charge of that update cuz I like that trick. Yeah. But uh the presentation I use for it is that the, the basic trick is that you can help let a spectator unlock your your own phone. And the presentation I use for it is I put the phone in front of them and I say you know you can't read my mind. I know you can't read my your I know you can't read my mind. All of this is bullshit. You know this is bullshit. I know this is bullshit. But I want you for a second to pretend like it's real. I want you to for a second to just be ridiculous. Yeah. And sincerely believe that you can know my number. Yeah. And uh, that is a presentation that the second half of that is a presentation that lots of people use, right? Yeah. That believe. You have to believe that you have this power. Yeah. And m- that makes most people uncomfortable. Yeah. Because they know they don't, most people know they don't have that power. And now they're, you're asking them to do a thing they to change know their they self identity. And, and, and that they know they can't do. And, yeah. and to change, yeah, to, to do something that isn't who they are. Yeah. And so if you, if you premise that, with, you know this is bullshit, I know this is bullshit, but come with me in a fiction. Yeah. Then you can bring them to the place where you want them to be anyway without... Alienating. Alienating. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think for... This is, like we were saying, this is like what you can do as a comedian. is You can be self-referential, you can acknowledge the weaknesses... Uh, you can acknowledge the flaws. You can acknowledge the the errors. Yeah. And if, as long as people think you're being honest, and you don't actually even have to be honest, you just have to be open enough, and come across as honest enough, and and as informal enough that if people think you are being honest, they'll forgive you the few moments where you want to dive into the deeper, more difficult presentation because they, they already buy it. Yeah. And I. I don't know. For for me, that's that's the thing that I use most frequently to try to make a group of people into an audience. Yeah. I don't I don't have a lot of better technique. I, it's there probably is a lot more that I could be doing, and it's something I wish I could do better. Sure. But that's the one thing I I know and think about. No, I think it's great. It's you get everybody on the same page, and you know you you do what again comedians do is when they walk out on stage, they address everyone's immediate perceptions of them. Right. They make the fat joke, or they go, you know, Pete Holmes' new special, uh, Faces and Sounds, which is amazing. I highly recommend everyone watch it on I'm HBO. very surprised that you're plugging Pete Holmes anything. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, 
the first thing he does when he comes out, because they're all his fans that are at the special taping. First thing he does when he comes out, he goes, this stage is way too nice for the jokes I'm about to tell. <laughs> yeah. Because everybody knows kind of what his material is, and it's this nice glitzy thing. So right. it's that immediate referencing what everybody's totally. already thinking. Yeah, or Dimitri Martin does. If, if, I guess this is a, a niche reference. for. Uh, but I think Dimitri Martin does the Comedy Cellar, which, if you've ever been in New York, is one of the best comedy venues ever. But it's yeah. in a basement. You they probably have seen a picture of the stage. It's the it's yes the the whole t- the opening for the TV show Louis yeah is uh, Louis C K into walking the into the cellar yeah and it is Louis they Louis. they way overpack that venue like yeah. there are so many more people in that venue than could fit and Dimitri Martin comes out and uh, like his opening bit is that he says something to the effect of uh, the best audience the the best rooms for comedy are the worst that would be in a fire. <laughs> like, like yeah. if you can't get out, uh, then it's probably a good room for comedy, and and yeah. you know that's one of those things where just everyone is sitting there in uncomfortable, uncomfortable yeah. touching someone they don't know yeah. next to them, yeah. and he comes out and he acknowledges this fact, and and if as long as you can blow up the thing that everyone's thinking, and for yeah. magicians, it's this guy doesn't think he's real, does he? Yeah, right. Like, is he? He doesn't have powers, does he? Right. Mm-hmm. And if you blow that up, they have, they have nowhere to go. Then they're just on your side. Yeah. I think, so this is what's kind of click-clacking around in my head when you brought up Dimitri and being in such a jam-packed frame, right? You said earlier, uh, being uncomfortable breeds creativity. Something like that. Yeah. So, Francis like, Minotti. I was quoting Francis, but yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah. That's, <clears throat> so, Dimitri is an eclectic performer. He doesn't just do stand-up. He does art, and he does songs, and he, you know... Um, I think it's funny that literally everyone in the room is uncomfortable and he un- addresses that. And then everyone in the room is ready for creativity. That's just a thought I had. Yeah. There's I, no point to that other than I wanted to say it out loud. No, I, th- I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think that... I think the important piece of it is that you... Uh, it, this is just like the classic. If there's an elephant in the room, you just point at it, right? Yeah. If, it, everyone's going to be uncomfortable unless you acknowledge it. So, I have two more examples of this from Pete Holmes. <laughs> yes, of course. So the first one is he had a late night show that came on after Conan called the Pete Holmes Show, and he talks about during his taping, the first taping of that show, he comes out and addresses the audience and starts this chant that is. Let's not fuck this up. Perfect. Yeah. So that's one. And then the second one is basically the same thing. So David, my best friend guy is David Yannick, who I mention every episode. He was at Pete's newest taping for the special. That's awesome. And that's one of the things. He's like, okay, guys, this is the special. Let's not fuck it up. Sometimes I might have to j- do a joke over because we need to get it the right way. And he just like he just addresses it. He's like he references the show business of it. Mm-hmm. You know, which is hard to do in magic, depending on your presentational style. But that's kind of what you're doing is addressing the show business of it by saying, "I'm the guy on stage, but I'm just a dude. I'm just a yeah. fucking guy." Yep. You know. And actually, I will. This is just soapbox moment of stump speech. Fucking uh, get up there. So this is something that bothers me in all forms of theater, magic included. Uh, amateur performers. Actors and magicians alike 
think that if something goes wrong, you have to just blow past it. And that's sometimes true, but I have seen so many actors and magicians drop a prop and then move on and blow past it like, that doesn't bother me. I'm going to show this audience that I can persevere. And every single person in that audience, every single one of them is staring at the prop on the floor. Yeah. Right? All of them. And if you if you persevere, no one is listening to the words that are coming out of your mouth. Yeah. If you just bend over and pick up the thing you dropped, you are a normal human because that is what humans would have done in that situation. Yeah. And it is, it's, it's exactly along these lines. Something has gone wrong. Yeah. I will address the thing that has gone wrong and then we can all move We're all on, on together. We're on the same page again. Yeah. But if you, but if you, you don't address the thing that has gone wrong, yeah. then everyone else is thinking about it and just it will just sit there yeah. being unresolved. You've got to check in with the audience too because people that do that are oblivious to the audience. Yes. Now, yes. I do that on purpose sometimes as misdirection. <laughs> but right you you know the you know what the rule is or you know what will happen and then you can break the rule. And that's yeah. right all of magic, all of magic is Knowing what the audience's expectations are and yeah. then subverting them. Yes. And I, I actually don't like the phrasing of you have to know the rules before you can break them because I think that's untrue. I think you can, I think that if something works for you, you should you should go and you should do it. Yeah. But in magic especially, you have to know what the audience is thinking. Yeah. And then you can subvert those expectations. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of talk. So I got a bunch of things that I want to talk about. Uh, we were talking about the, hold on, let me write down this thing that I am about to ask you. And then try and remember the thing that I forgot. Or should I just do the thing that I already am ready to ask you and then hopefully remember the thing? No, write it down. Think of, take your time. Think about it. and then. Well, now I've we'll forgotten the thing that I was ready to ask you. Mm, see, this is why it's a problem. I was kind of hoping this would happen because it's almost like a Laurel and Hardy moment. Um, Third base. Uh, that's, not, that's not Laurel and Hardy. That's no, it's not. That's Evan Costello. Evan Costello. Laurel and Hardy, Evan Costello. It's all the same. Mm-hmm. It's not like I know anything. Three Stooges. About. They're all the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is like this. That now we're uh, this is Thelma and Louise, right? and especially we're about? we're now getting into one of my favorite XKCD comics, which is uh, I can never remember the actual phrasing of it, but it's something like um, as time goes on, we increasingly think of the past as a single entity and can't make any differentiation between the time periods, and it's some people on stage like some of them holding spears and some of them holding computers and lap- laptops, and it's uh, something like. Uh, I did you grok that me hearties? And it's just a wonderful. We we conflate all time periods because I think of Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello and the Three Stooges all being exactly the same time. And yeah, I don't know whether or not that's true, but I'm pretty sure I'm wrong. Yeah, I I'm pretty yeah I made. But thank you for yes anding me. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Um, what was I now? I really don't remember either of the things that I was going to ask you. What were we talking about? Now I'm asking you to remember. <laughs> uh, picking things up, uh, addressing the problem, picking things up uh, if yeah. they fall down, and then using, uh-huh. but, um, using that understanding what the audience is thinking and subverting oh, yes. okay. their expectations. Subverting expectations. So that's one of the things. What was the other? Subverting expectations was the thing I was ready to ask you about. What was the other thing? I d- Tell me what I'm thinking, Michael. 
We'll just do the subverting expectations things, and hopefully people sitting in traffic listening to the last three minutes haven't driven into the person next to them to end this conversation. So, anyway, uh, there's a lot of talk in Magic about... Yes, this is what I was going to say. There's a lot of talk in Magic about how, like, the rule of three... I bet if you ask most magicians that say the rule of three, they don't know why that's a thing. Other than, you know, in religious context, you know, like all that stuff. Here's my thought on that. Is because the rule of three is joke structure. It is presenting uh, uh, some kind of premise and then supporting that premise and then subverting that premise, right? And you get the surprise at the end. So, like, the rule of three, you can do three phases poorly. It doesn't matter how, you know, if three is the right number, but they have to be constructed in that way. So people say, you know, the rule of three, but that's not helpful, necessarily. I think of the rule of three as... um If I'm going to be mean, I'm going to say I think of the rule of three as training wheels. Uh-huh. Uh, is, but on the other hand, I will acknowledge that this is an area where I haven't, I haven't thought this through in the way that I have thought most things through. Because yeah. I, am, I am a very analytical person. I like to sit and think and decide and figure out what the right answer is and move forward from, from that basis. And I, like we were talking about before... I want to argue this out until I know the right answer intellectually and I can apply it later yeah. on. And I have tried with this kind of thing, but I don't, I can't do it. Uh, and I, and for the rule of three, things like that, uh, I, I rely largely, honestly, on sort of my background in music. Mm-hmm. And I think of it as the cadence and what, what cadence works here. Where is the emphasis? Where does it feel right to put the punchline? Where does it feel right to put the moment where we break tension. And it's not always three. It's most frequently three. Yeah. But uh, I I do a trick where... I do a trick that I use to set up an out-of-this-world. Mm-hmm. Um, it is basically a Roadrunner call. Yeah. I have a spectator shuffle the cards. I do a red-black Roadrunner call, pretending like I'm memorizing the order of the cards. Mm-hmm. Um I say, look, I, I can't, there are experts who can do this very quickly. I can't memorize all of the numbers and all of the suits together. In fact, I can't even memorize all of the numbers. And if I'm being honest with you, I can't memorize the suits. <laughs> right? So there's your rule of three. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and that's the cadence, and it's there yeah. uh, because it feels right. Yeah. Uh, but then what I do is I say, now, if I've memorized this correctly, uh, I should be able to tell you the order not of the numbers and not of the suits, but the red, black, red, black order throughout the deck. Yeah. So I remember, having memorized the deck, the top two cards are red. Yeah. Followed by a red card. And then there's a red card, and then there's a red card. And then there's two more red cards followed by a third red card, which is followed by a fourth red card. Then there's another red card. Then there's four more red cards. Yeah. And then I do this thing where I was like, 
And then there's four more red cards in the deck. There's four in a row, which is very rare. You normally don't see four red cards in a row like this, especially when you shuffle the deck as thoroughly as you did, because you did a very good job shuffling. Yeah. So you normally don't see these four red cards in a row. You wouldn't have a block like that. That's just It's just normally not how it works, except for these four. And then I turn over the next four, and yeah. they're also red. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I mean, I play that differently for every audience. Yeah. Uh, based on their attention, based upon where I see them looking, as I see, them start to, as I see their attention start to flag, uh, I change it. Yeah. And it's it's just about feeling the cadence in the same way you do in music. Yeah. Well, uh, that's you checking in with the audience. Again. Right. Yeah. And and the cadence has changed based upon checking in with the audience. Yeah. Uh, I think the rule of three is a pretty good default. Mm-hmm. I think that that's how most people... I, I think that if you use the rule of three, you're going to hit it more often than not. Yeah. But I think that if you learn... To, as, as Apollo Robbins says, if you learn to surf the audience's attention, you learn more effective cadences than if you just have a set structure. Yeah. Well, that's a, that goes back to being present with the audience. Absolutely. It's, so, and this, okay, so how, how is it different? Because you do a lot of close-up, but you also have a stage show. How is surfing the audience different between the two? Or is it? Because there's there's much more structure in a stage show. It's very it. So for me, it's very different. But that's because the the material I do close up and stage is very different. Yeah. Uh, I have always loved the thing I've always loved about close up is that there are no excuses about uh, gimmicks and props and things, right? If people wanted to rip the thing out of my hands, they could. Yeah. In a way that they couldn't do when they're seated, seated in a theater and I'm up on stage. Yeah. Um, now, most people are too polite to do that, but they also, many of them sort of recognize that they could. Yeah. Uh, and 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 sometimes they ask to see the deck and I will always give it to them and because I almost, I rarely use gimmicked cards. I will use gimmicked cards and I will ring them in at wonderful times, but 80% of my repertoire is is a normal deck. Yeah. So, uh, and I will give it, cause I, also because I give them away. And, and yes. So, uh, on stage, the way, I've always struggled on stage because I, you, everyone's going to suspect every prop when they can't be three inches from it. And so I actually try to get rid of as many props as possible on stage. And so I end up doing more mentalism and less sleight of hand on stage. Uh, and so when I'm doing close-up, surfing the audience's attention is, is hugely about misdirection and when I can do a technique and the angles of the technique and uh, playing off of their laughter and figuring out which joke they're going to laugh at and which joke they're not going to laugh at so I know when they have a moment of lowered attention and things like that. Uh, technique, it's, very te- it's frequently very technique-based. Uh, but on stage... I choose techniques that frequently don't require that kind of misdirection, so it's it's very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to I used to do stage material that also required misdirection, but uh, I have I have moved away from that uh, in in a lot of the stage stuff that I do. So now, surfing the audience's attention is much more about keeping their attention with the story I'm telling and keeping them enthusiastic and uh my friend david clavins who's here in the bay area has done a really good job helping me figure out how to put variety into my stage show 
Yeah. Because close up, you're you're there, you're human, you're interacting, and there's it's so easy to just talk with people and make it interesting. On stage, you don't have that interaction piece with the which with every individual. Yeah. And so you have to create different stage pictures. You have to be in front of the curtain, behind the curtain, behind the table, in front of the table, have people next to you, have not people next to you, so that things continue to be interesting. Um, you have to do fast-paced things and slow-paced things and create variety, um, which is something that that uh, I think a lot of people don't do well. And I think that I have not done well for a long time. And it's something that I did not recognize yeah. was important yeah. until fairly recently working with, with David because he does a show every week up here, and it's great. And he, he gets the flight time to learn that thing and luckily can pass on some of that knowledge to me. Uh, so for, for me, surfing the audience's attention in a stage show is about when is their attention flagging, when are they bored, when do I have to speed up, and when do I have the leeway to slow down and tell a story where I know I'm going to hold their attention. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned that over the course of doing the same show a bunch of times, but also within a particular show. Um, when do I have the leeway to ad-lib? Yeah. And when do I feel like I just need to move on because they're they're not with me in the moment? Yeah, yeah. So so I think that's important for people to think about is variety is not having different kinds of tricks for the sake of variety itself. It's so that you are holding people's attention. Right. That's absolutely right. And and I act so people. I will stand up for card magicians right now and say everyone who's ever told you you need to do something other than a card trick is wrong. Helder uh, Gimadias, if I'm going to say it closer to correctly, and um, Derek Delgadio did nothing to hide at the Geffen Playhouse. It was a show that included only card tricks. Literally every one of the tricks they did in that show was a card trick. They were very different card tricks, yeah. and some of them used cards more as props than as playing cards, but they were all technically card tricks. And that show broke every extension record in that space at the Geffen Playhouse that they ever had. Up to that point. Yeah. Up to that point. Yeah. And, that's in, that's in, and that's not... Those aren't magicians going to see that show. I mean, there were a lot of magicians who went to go see that show, but that's yeah. not a show that is being held up by magicians. That is the paying, theater-going theater connoisseur public yeah. loving that show that is entirely card tricks. Uh, and so the, what is required in variety is variety of interest, mm -hmm. not variety of prop. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that a lot of people fall into a, um, a trap here, which is that they think that if you use cards the whole time, people will be bored. So they... And I've seen Magic Castle acts that do this, where... I'm going to open with a card trick, and then I'm going to put the cards away, and I'm going to do a coin trick, and then I'm going to put the coins away, and I'm going to do uh, a pen trick, and I'm going to put the pen away, and I'm going to do a cups sponge balls, balls or then, cups yeah. and balls, and that's my ending with yeah. lemons. And um, this is personal. This is not something that I've necessarily vetted with a bunch of non-magicians or even a bunch of magicians, but I think that comes off as amateurish, that uh, when when you can only do one trick per prop, it it, it feels... To me, at least personally, yeah, like you've gone to the magic shop exactly. and you bought just a the more thing. Expensive version of buying six different one dollar plastic tricks, right? Yeah, and uh, that may or may not be true. Yeah, but I, th 
it, it feels that way to me when I'm watching a show and I have to think that other people feel the same yeah. way. Well, to me, just just imagining it, it, I'm I'm the thing that I'm thinking is that guy is not an expert with a prop because he's doing five different props. You know, he's a jack of all trades, not a master of one. Right. You know. And and I think there are ways around. That, of course, that, right? I'm, that's a that's just my thought, not necessarily an indictment of doing that. Right. Because I I think I mean. Um, at least in my style of magic, where, where I'm being open about the fact that it's all sleight of hand and I'm not claiming magic powers, uh, I want to be an expert. Like yeah. you're saying, right? I want to come off as an expert in something. Yeah. Uh, and even if you're going to use different props, if you can use different props to, to show that you were expert in something, then it, I think it makes more sense. Sure. Like if you're... Uh, like Apollo is a great example of this, right? He uh, His show... When he performs frequently, uh, as at least the shows I've seen, I, I can't possibly claim to have seen most of what he does, but, uh, you know, he steals different things over the course of the show. He's he's working with people's watches and people's glasses and, and the, the pen and the coin and, and does he's doing body loading. And it's clear that even though he's using different props every for everything or for lots of things, the thing he's expert in is managing this person so that they only see what he wants them to see and they don't see these seemingly obvious things that he doesn't want them to see. Yeah. So you can you can be an expert in something fairly abstract. Yeah. Uh, but I, I totally agree that you're trying to look as like an expert about something. Yeah. You're trying very hard to remember the other thing. I am, still. And I can't. But yeah, I you know... If you can stick with a thing, you can weave a longer story, and then you've got room in that one thing to play around with the tempo, play around with the timing, play around with the emotional charge of each moment. You know, But if you're going from prop to prop, maybe think about... I'm not saying people that go from prop to prop aren't capable of doing this, but if you are going from prop to prop, think about... you know how that disconnects your set or your show. Or just think about if you're if you're creating variety by using different props, figure out, A, how you're going to create continuity through your show, yes. but also, how are you going to create other kinds of variety? Because other kinds of variety don't stop being important just because you're using different props. Exactly, yeah, and that's, I guess that was my original point that I did not communicate very well, which is that other kinds of variety, tempo, emotional charge, you know, what you, basically what you were saying is irrelevant to the props that you're using. That's the kind of right. variety, is the, the audience management, you know, playing them like an instrument, that kind of thing. That's a good example, it's a good uh, analogy, is a symphony, you know, you're playing... Uh, I'm I'm blanking. Let's say uh, the the planets, Hulse the planets. Yeah. Each movement is very different because it's a personality of this planet or this god. But it's all the same. That's the continuity. It's all the same thing. So there is variety because you've got a different tempo, you've got different melodies, you've got different uh, sections of the symphony taking over the melody and and guiding and weaving and things like that. Uh, 
And that I think that's... Look to other art forms to influence your magic. That's right, yeah. This is the... It's, the let's, let's also mention, it's like nearly 11 p.m. and my bedtime was four hours ago, so I'm a little loopy. <laughs> that's the best way. Yeah, I, mean, look, I agree. I, the best magic happens at 2 a.m. at Denny's, uh, and there's a reason for it. Yeah. And part of it is that we're all loopy at that time. Yes. And it's the best. It, this is already the best right now. I'm just saying, forgive me, because Michael's the best. That's the second time today, Rahul, that someone has said in front of you that another person's thing was better. <laughs> I'm stealing yours. Okay. Um... So, the it, like, the San Francisco. There's like a there's like a Bay Area click, right? Like when I think of you guys, I think of you, you. So Rahul, yourself, Theron, David Clavins. Like the four of you, I feel like are this little. Theron called you guys the brain trust, right? Right. He's like, Rahul is one thing, David's another thing, and he said you're the sleight of hand guy. And that goes back to you, like, practicing. But you, 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 like, not only that, of course, I'm not diminishing you to this one thing, but, like, how important is it for you to... I mean, you've been hinting at it and talking about it, but, like, can you go into collaboration a little more and how important that is for anyone writing their own magic or creating their own Oh, my God, collaboration is the most important thing ever. There you go. Keep nah, going. You remembered your other thing. I did. Uh, collaboration for me is super important. It's just, it's, uh, if I collaborate, my magic is great. If I don't collaborate, my magic sucks. And that is uh, <laughs> not always true, but that's an 80 20 general rule. General rule. Uh, I, like I was saying before, the way I learn is by arguing. I like to, I will present my side, I will say, this is the thing that I do, convince me I'm wrong. Um, and in that dialectic, I learn where I'm right, and I learn where I'm wrong, and I, my magic gets much better as a result. Yeah. Like, when I, I did a, a show up here in the Bay Area recently, uh, <coughs> where I, I sat down and I wrote a one-hour card Magic show using only playing cards. Yeah. And I did it once. And it was not what I wanted it to be. Uh, and then I brought in the brain trust uh, and did it only for them. Yeah. And they told me they they told me that some of my babies, some of the things that I loved and were my favorite things about the show were just terrible. And they said some of the things that I like least about the show and a time where I had messed up were their favorite parts of the mm -hmm. show. And I argued with them that, no, I have to keep this thing because it's so great and it works so well with the show. Uh, and this other thing, you know, was a mistake and I don't want to keep it. And they would convince me otherwise. And at the end of the day, uh, even where I had resisted, the thing that was on paper at the end was so much better than the thing that had started in the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and that has always been true for me. And it's one of the reasons I frequently look, I, I have always wanted to do multiple person magic shows. I've always wanted to do like, Hey, let's you and me get together and do a show. Uh, 
ideally where we're both on stage most of the time, but even where I do a show and then you do a show, as long as we're talking about it, if, if, if you're there to tell me what I'm doing that sucks and I'm there to tell you what you're doing that sucks, that it just, it, it will make both of us better in a way that is impossible to do on your own. Yeah. It's just impossible to do on your own. And every once in a while, I will come up with something on my own that holds a candle to, to the other stuff, but it's so rare. It's just so rare. The The brain trust in, in that way up here, as Theron calls it, although I'm using that word more times today than I've, I think I've ever used it in the past, uh, <laughs> it is, is invaluable. It's really, really great. Yeah. And I like running stuff by... I run stuff by lots of my other friends in Magic as well, um, but having people nearby who you can vet stuff with yeah. is, is wonderful. But I think even more wonderful than having the particular people to vet is having a culture where that's good. Yeah. And that's what the Magic Garage here in the Bay Area does. It is uh, Will Chandler, who uh, is a fucking saint um, for... He's a contractor by trade, and he built this thing in the, called the Magic Garage, which is in his house. It is literally in his garage. And because he's a contractor... When I say he built the stage in his garage, I don't mean he put out some chairs. I mean there's a raised platform stage with running curtains and a tech booth and a camera in the back of the room that puts a feed out to three ceiling-mounted TVs in other rooms in his house, and he throws a big show every couple of months. But he, he opens his house to magicians every week for 11 years. And that's incredible. Yeah. And in addition to doing that, he also takes it upon himself to gather people, move them from the kitchen and the living room where we all are hanging out, into the garage, which is the theater space, and just says, you're all going to run something, and we're all going to give you critiques. And it has fostered this culture where that's acceptable in a way that it's just not in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I love New York. I love, love New York, and I love the community there. I mean, the magic community in New York is um, has some really stellar talent and some really awesome people. Um, the same is true of us. The same is, yeah, it, to, to not quite name one. Ricky is amazing. And yeah. uh, that whole group there is incredible. Yeah. Um, and same with Los Angeles. I mean, there is so much talent in L.A. And I love being able to walk into the castle and see 20 of my best friends who are also the most talented magicians. But my impression of living in New York and spending a lot of time in L.A. is that the culture of vetting material isn't the same as it is here. Yeah. Uh, there is, I'm, sh- I'm sure there are pockets of it that I, that I don't know about, but it's, but here in the Bay area, it's so common to show people, even the people who you don't know and love and trust yeah. to, to help vet your stuff, just anyone. Yeah. Um, whereas my impression of it in New York and LA and, and lots of other places is that really it's, you got your couple of friends and you show them and you don't show other people. Yeah, people are a lot... They keep things a lot more close to the chest in New York and L.A., I have found. You guys are very open and, and, and welcome to share. Whereas in those places, that doesn't happen. And maybe it's like San Francisco, 
engineer open source culture. Maybe yeah. it's maybe it's something, but it's uh, it's really that it, it creates collaboration. It creates the environment for collaboration, and it it makes everyone's magic here better. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'm glad we. But let's problem solved. Problem solved. You heard it here first, folks. All you need in New York is to have someone who has a house with a garage already a problem. Uh, <laughs> and then to open it up to strangers for 10 years, uh, impossible. <laughs> no, but, I, but ha- having a group that is willing to... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, actually, you know what? I take that back. Um, there is a group in New York. Uh, it, it's, it's not... Mo- most of it is not the group that I used to hang out with. Um, while I was living there because it has sort of formed and reached critical mass since I left New York. But there is a group which I think I still get the credit. I think I still get credit for having named the group, but there's a group called Magnets, um, which uh, which comes from a Pete Holmes joke. Oh, yes. Uh, and uh, <laughs> is, is a group that gets together and performs and critiques each other. Yeah. Um, and that... I don't remember. I I didn't remember it well because it really reached critical mass after I left. But that is they are the creating that culture in New York as well. And and I am I because I was a member of it long ago, and because I named it, I think, uh, and because Eli Bosnick is uh, a central part of it, and we're good friends. Uh, I still am on the Facebook group. So every time they get together, I get forty seven thousand. Uh, <laughs> I got like forty seven thousand Facebook messages whenever they want to get together, um, but they are, they are definitely doing a good job of that out there now as well. Great, magnet, it's magnet. Just, what does that even mean? Just Google, just Google Pete Holmes and magnets, and shut your mouth. That is why we show. named a magic group magnets. Yeah. Uh, will you burn that bit? Snap and wave. I really don't want to. No. Okay. okay I'm no, gonna... no, you don't have to. Right. You don't have to. Listeners, seek out Michael Feldman. Ask him to show you a trick. Hopefully he'll do the bit. Uh, if you ask me to do a trick, I will almost certainly do the bit, but it is uh, it is my baby, and it is really central to my character Sh- and my personality, fair, yeah. and, uh, and I, will, I, I will happily show it to anyone in person, but it is one of the things that is easily stealable, and that's just I one of the that. things I don't want to. Yeah, no, burn. totally, totally. Um, I will tell people my reaction to it the first time I heard it. So, showing me a trick, and you do the thing, and my head exploded, and I had to run around like a chicken picking up pieces of my brain off the floor, because I had never, in my life, experienced that. In the context of a magic trick, it is a it is a moment in it, it's not something I do in every show. It's something I do in most shows, and most close up sets, even if I'm just doing walk around. Yeah, uh, and it's just a line, but it it establishes my character and it establishes my point of view very quickly, um, and it, it it's sub- like and it subverts expectations of a magic show really well. And it is um, it's if a you see me shot if you see me at a convention. Uh, or if you see me anywhere, or if you're in the Bay Area, come and talk to me about it, and I'll happily talk through it with you, and I'll happily share it with you. Uh, but it is it is one of those things that is so central to my personality that I feel weird about 
publishing it even on a podcast. Sure, that's fine. I'm not. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to be secretive about it, but it's not something I want to broadcast. No, so I understand because it, it's like it, because it is so central to who you are and to your character. Like you want to, you want to do it justice, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get that. Um. We uh, because we've talked about collaboration because we've talked about performance because we've talked about sleight of hand what's your method for creating a new trick like what do you think of do you find a method and you're like what's a good way to do this on stage or do you have an idea and then find a method and then what do the steps look like i i do both Mm -hmm. i sometimes start with effect and sometimes i start with method generally speaking the tricks where I start with effect are better. At least I think. Yeah. Um, I have effects where I have started with technique that have earned a central place in my repertoire or a central place in my show. Yeah. But I, I like the things where it's, um, I I like the things that, that come from effect first better generally. Uh, here are my two or three favorite ways to create. One is to find something that I hate. To find a, a technique or a plot, usually a plot, that I hate and fix it. Were you and I... Yes. This was a Pebble Palooza. We were talking about uh, that, you know, the invisible... Invisible Palm, palm Aces. Aces trick. I still don't have a solution for that that I like. And I have no, I have not performed that trick since we had that conversation for that reason, which is, you have to pick the cards up off the table. And I was like, God damn it, you're right. I so, um, in the, as examples that like you can maybe see me perform somewhere, uh, my out of this world, which is called uh, intuition, is uses. Oh, the, the spectator only deals through about half of the deck. Uh, and I, I thought, you know, I think it's totally possible to have a spectator deal through an entire deck and be entertained. I, I think that is totally possible. I actually don't have a problem with dealing tricks in the way that a lot of people have a problem with dealing tricks. But I was always bothered that there is this weird, secondary, undisclosed, unmentioned trick in... Uh, out of this world, which is not ju- you don't just separate, and you know, magically separate twenty six and twenty six. Yeah, not just that you not just red and black, but twenty six and twenty six in this bizarre way, and and it just seems not too perfect in like the too perfect theory kind of way. Yeah, just too perfect in like that's too neat and tidy, and so I I hated that. It, it obviously hints at method because of it. Yeah, and I and I also right, oh, no no so actually, uh. No, I actually don't have that problem with, with Out of This World. Uh, I don't think that necessarily hints at method. It might, but that's not my problem with it. Yeah. Um, my problem with it is that if you... Th- there's clearly a trick there. You, the magician, have done a thing that has made me separate these cards into the right... In, into the 26 and 26. Yeah. And people then, I think some people, at least I do, think of it as like, you got me to get the right 26 and 26, which is not what I want. I want the effect of, 
how did I know which cards were red and which cards were black? And it, it murkies the water. It murkies the water, absolutely. And yes. so I, I wanted, don't deal through the whole deck, deal part of the deck, and then maybe you have a giant stack of red cards, and maybe you have a very small stack of black cards, but that's fine. Yeah. And then that's almost more impressive. Yeah. And I, I've also found that you will frequently get a spectator, not frequently, but every once in a while you'll get a spectator who, you know, wants to deal 20 cards in one pile and one card in another pile. And, you know, with mine, you know, you can get to a point where that's still problematic in mine, but it, there's a lot more leeway uh, in, in my version than in uh, the traditional UF Grant version and, a lot, and in a lot of the other uh, versions. And, uh, and and also, I always hated that when you turned over the cards in the traditional version, it was a half stack of red and a half stack of black and another half stack of red and half stack of black. And I understand methodologically why that's there, and I I have performed that trick for lots of people. The original, the original out of this world is incredible, and it blows people away. But aesthetically, I didn't like it. Yeah. Because if you are separating red cards and black cards, and the ending stage picture, even if it's on a table, the ending quote-unquote stage picture is... The Kodak moment. The Kodak, even the Kodak moment has red and black cards mixed to yeah. some extent. There's, there's, and I don't, it's, it feels like it sucks the air out of the moment you, you want. When, when you turn over, so in my version, when I turn over all the cards, when I finish turning over all the cards... All of the black cards are on one side of the table, and all of the red cards are on another side of the table, and the, I can step away, and that impression will last for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, I, my, my method is not the best. I don't claim for it to be the best. There are lots of people who have amazing versions of that trick, but it's the version I do because it solves the problems that I cared about aesthetically, artistically, and methodologically. Yeah. And that's how I go about creating tricks. I, I, I mean, I had a, I had problems with out of this world, and yeah. I said, "How do I fix those problems?" Yeah. And then I came up with a solution. Uh, similarly, method two for coming up with tricks, uh, which has a lot of relationship to the first one, is to to f blatantly steal a plot or interesting effect from a friend of mine, who. Uh, I have seen, but I don't like the technique or I don't like some piece of the method. Yeah. So um, my best sources for this, and I will out them now, uh, are all Canadians. They're all uh, they're Ben Train, Chris Mayhew, and Tyler Wilson. Yeah. Those guys together have inspired at least 50% of my repertoire. Just they come up with interesting, crazy, off-the-wall plots uh, and I will read them, or I will see them perform, and I will say, uh, that's really interesting, I hate how you did X. And then I will come up with something that... You steal that, like an artist. I steal like an artist. I, I find the thing about the trick that I like, uh, and I take the things that I don't like about the trick and throw them out and create a new trick based on it. So uh, my favorite example of this is, is Chris Mayhew showed told me a story actually he didn't even show me the trick he told me a story where uh he had someone pick a card and they were supposed to put it back in the deck but they didn't his, his back oh was God. turned right that's what i, I just yeah. wrote down i want to talk about so trick. so he, his back was turned and and he put it back uh the spectator put the card the back. spectator did not put the card back in the deck 
and Chris dealt through the deck. And the spectator called stop whatever they wanted. Uh, and the spectator stopped, and Chris turned over the card. And Chris did not know he had a duplicate in his deck. Yeah. But he landed on the duplicate. And the person was obviously floored, yeah. because that's insanity. Yeah. Uh, and Chris was looking for a way to duplicate that effect for a long time, and he came up with a couple of methods. Um, and th- the trick that I showed you at whatever, MagicCon 3, I think it wasn't MagicCon 2, was MagicCon Magic 3, is based on that. And yeah. the plot is basically the same, except that I use a signed card because I wanted it to, I, I wanted it to not possibly be a duplicate. Yeah. And... Uh, I Hold want on, to be able to do it every register, time. Let's just let that register for people listening. The you plot have of, a card. So, yeah. The okay. plot of the trick is, uh, spectator picks out a card and signs it. I turn my back and I say something uh, like, "You're gonna hide." I, what I say is, "You're gonna hide the card wherever you want." And then when I turn back around, I continue the action as if what I've said is, "You're gonna hide the card wherever you want in the deck." Yeah. And I go through the rest of the procedure, and they find they deal down. The, and I, I don't do it with dealing; I do it a different way. Yeah. But they put their finger down on a card, and I say, uh, "You know, do you think that could be, possibly be your card?" Uh, and I get them to admit. I play the role of actually thinking the card is in the deck, and that this should be their card. Uh, and I get them to admit that they have not hidden the card in the deck; they have put it somewhere else. And then I continue to play the part that I am surprised by that and that they should have put the card back in the deck and now the trick is ruined. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it involves some acting. It involves some actually sometimes quite difficult acting because I am trying to get information out of them sometimes they want to hide and I have to get it out of them while still plausibly having messed up the trick. Yeah. Uh, s- side note, that's Magician in Trouble. I love the Magician in Trouble plot. I hate the magician having fucked up effect. Yes. Um, if you find the wrong card and say that's your card and they say no, you are not magician in trouble. You are in magician in already having fucked up. Uh, <laughs> and they don't. They're they're they don't. They're not waiting to see how you're going to get out of it because you've already messed up. They're they may be waiting to see what you do next, but they're not waiting to see what you're how you're going to get out of it. In my trick, uh, their finger is on one card which ostensibly should be their card, but everyone in the audience knows that they have hidden the card in their shoe or under the table or in the plant, in the plant in the, yeah. or wherever it is. Um, that's Magician in Trouble, because I haven't revealed the card yet, but it can't possibly be there. What am I going to do? Uh, and the answer is that I, or the spectator, actually, turns over the... I actually have them return... So I, I can or don't have to have them return the card to the deck from wherever it's hidden, standing far away from the table, and then I or the spectator will turn over the card, um, and it is in fact their signed card. Yeah. Uh, having resolved the magician in trouble moment. And uh, it's what it's probably my most pet piece now. It's the thing that I am have the most propriety over and the thing I am most proud of having created in the last couple of years. Um, That's the trick that you referred to at the beginning, which was if I had not made you show it to a bitch of people in Magikind. It wouldn't have been in my repertoire. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's my, and I love it now. Uh, But it it came from a story from Chris Mayhew, um, where we were both trying to find out, trying to figure out how to, 
recreate this moment that was an accident. Yeah. Um, and, and Tyler Wilson and Ben Train do similar things pretty frequently where they will come up with an interesting offbeat plot and I won't like a particular piece of the presentation or I won't like a, a method or I won't like something. Yeah. Um, and I'll change it to make it mine. Uh, so and, and frequently that means it looks almost nothing like the original, uh, but sometimes it's closer, sometimes it's further away. Sure. But th- those guys, and Harapan Ong, who I haven't, I haven't stolen like an artist from him nearly as much, but I, I should start because he's, uh, he also has lots of really interesting, offbeat, uh, compelling plots uh, that I don't perform for one reason or another. Yeah. Uh, and that's the the second place to really start from in in the creative process in, in in being inspired to do a thing. So find something you hate and fix it, or find something you love and make it your own. Yeah. <laughs> find something you love and fix it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the starting you're fixing po- it for yourself. The starting point is either looking at a at a classic or a, a something that you don't the, where you something you don't like and moving off of that the other side of it is finding a, a plot or a an effect that you love uh, and just running with it yeah. and that sometimes means fixing a plot point but sometimes it just I mean with friends like crit Tyler especially um, <laughs> but uh, Tyler is is great at coming up with compelling plot lines and then also like I, I don't know how to improve his methods. Yeah. Um, and Ben Train as well has uh, really, really, cl- frequently has really, really clean, efficient methods where if I were, I, the method is not the place to improve yeah. what he's doing. Uh, because it, it, if you switch one thing, it has a ripple effect through everything else that makes everything else less clean. He's really good at that. Um, and and Chris just has this like, force of sheer will of... Uh, of making things work that I, I can't make work uh, in the same way because he... You he, guys are totally different Because we're very, very yeah. different characters. Uh, he... He... Uh, he is inspired by Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman is his person, the comedian he looks up to that he's trying to emulate, and Bo Burnham is the comedian I'm trying to emulate, and if you see both of us perform, I think that's super, super clear. So I, want, I wrote down Bo... Because Make Happy, his new special, is undeniably a masterpiece of modern theater. Yes, absolutely. Tell us about it. Uh, just go watch everything Bill Burnham has ever done. Yeah. Uh, I watched Words, Words, Words often enough that my girlfriend started walking out of the room when I would turn it on because she couldn't hear it again. Yeah. Uh, and I just I study it. It's he's he's wonderful. Um, Make happy is wonderful in a lot of ways. Uh, he, I'll start with why I like Bo uh, in general, and then why Make Happy is good. I like Bo in general because he's fast paced. He's really smart. He apologizes for none of it. He pulls no punches. And if you can come along for the ride, it's all there. But if you don't come along for the ride, you get whatever you can pick up and you enjoy it anyway. Yeah. Uh, and or you hate it. Or you hate it. But look, who cares? Yeah, no, um, right. I would much rather... I mean, I, ha- I am... This is not how I make my living. 
Um, and maybe I would feel differently if I made my living this way. Yeah. But uh, as as someone who is doing it for fun and as a as a means of expressing who I am, I would much rather be ten people's favorite magician yeah. than seven thousand people's acceptable magician. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I hope Matt Franco never listens to this. I doubt that Matt Franco will ever listen to this. But Matt Franco became famous as an average person. And there was a... When he was on the cover of Magic Magazine, I think the headline was Redefining Average. Uh, And just God help me if anyone ever describes anything I ever do as Redefining Average. Uh, I... He's doing it professionally, and and he is much more successful than I am likely to ever be. But uh, as uh, a presentational piece, as, as a... as a matter of expressing myself, I would much rather some people love me than that everyone like me. Yeah. Uh, and that is true of Bo. I mean, I, I assume it's true of Bo. Yeah. It seems to be true of Bo. Uh, I, he also is wildly more successful than I am ever likely to be. Uh, so he can, he can speak for himself on that front. But uh, he, he does what he does and he goes to the wall, and he does it unapologetically, and if you like it, then you love it, and it's amazing. Can I tell you something you might find interesting? Sure. Magic inspired this new special, specifically Penn & Teller. That's awesome, and I did not know that. Which is that Penn & Teller are honest about them lying to you. And his special's so meta. Yeah. Know? And that's that's what I wrote down. Is like, how do you do meta magic? And it seems like you come closer than most people. I do a lot of meta magic. I do a lot of meta magic, and that comes from from Bo as well. Yeah. Uh, lots of things like. Um, well, I interrupted you, and I didn't. Yeah, mean no, to. it's fine. So lots of things come from him in in my act. Like, um, t- t- avoid exposition. Don't explain things. Be sarcastic about them. Uh, so, he, Bo does a really good job of. Um, getting a point across by saying the opposite, but mm-hmm. in a way that you get it. So it's it, it's not even show don't tell, right? Yeah, uh, but even yeah, there and in lots of places, even when he's just talking. Uh, and I and I love the fact that he has been so successful being unapologetically smart. Yeah. Um, because it's a it's a huge part of my self identity and wanting to be. I'm a Ravenclaw. I'm overeducated and proud of it, and. Uh, and I and I love that he can be successful that way, and I and I want to go in that direction as well. Yeah. Uh, well, it's thi- authentic to you. It and it's just me. Yeah. Uh, unapologetically overeducated, obnoxious about it, and you know that sometimes to the point goes, where people cry and leave parties. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, no, and and like, look, it's 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 got a it's got a hard edge that I try to avoid, and sure. that I and that I try to uh, accommodate and. And that I try to make you sure you apologize it works. to me plenty of times. We're good, <laughs> That's right. uh, but it, but it is it is never going to stop being a part of my identity. So it, it of course I embrace it and move forward. Yeah, uh, make happy. You get that from Bo. Yeah, make happy uh, has all the things that are wonderful about Bo Burnham in Spades. It also has a thing that I have not succeeded in doing in Magic. And would like to, and it is sort of the it is one of those things that I sit and think about frequently. Uh, my favorite moments in almost any kind of art, just a- a- any kind of art, 
is when it can make you feel two incredibly different emotions at the same time. Um, Bo has a moment in his show where he gets really sad. Yeah. Uh, he he um, seemingly honestly, it may or may not be totally honest. I I, I tend to think that it is. Yeah. Um, but whether or not it is, it feels honest. Uh, where he he goes down a rabbit hole of explaining the thing, the the reasons he is unhappy with his life and the reasons he is unhappy with the things that he is doing and the fact that he can he doesn't find fulfillment in, in various aspects of it and right at the moment where you start to question how someone is doing this in a comedy show mm-hmm. he speaks like four words and you laugh out loud uproariously and so fast that you haven't stopped being sad while you're laughing mm-hmm. and that moment is my favorite in any kind of art and and if we're going to recommend stuff and I'm just going to do it right now anyway um, Bo Burnham Louis of Louis C the Louis the TV show of Louis CK yep. and Bojack Horseman oh my um, god like Bojack uh, those are three shows that are uproariously funny yes laugh out loud funny and you will come away from them sad anyway and that doesn't sound like necessarily the thing you want to do all the time, and it's definitely not the thing I want to do all the time. In fact, I've seen Make Happy twice when it first came out, um, and I have not been ready to watch it again because I have every time I have the time, I have not been in a place where I'm willing to be sad for as long as I will be after watching that show. Yeah. But uh, but it is worth it if you can be in that emotional place for long enough because experiencing that kind of dual emotion thing that those three uh, those three pieces of art really, really get uh, in a way that I don't see almost anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, just go do it. I, I would love to be able to do that with my magic. Uh, I would love to be able to be as honest on stage as he is. Um, and I... I like to think that I could, but my, I, I, I can't like, I'm, uh, I am inhibited by various things in my life that, uh, I, I cannot put the deepest insecurities I have on the stage. Uh, I can put a lot of them on the stage. I can put a lot of things I'm insecure about on the stage, What are um, they? <laughs> but I, but I can't. But I can't do sort of the deepest ones that are the most meaningful that I think would actually resonate and get to what Bill Burnham is doing. Actually, the other thing, the other piece of art that did this for me, uh, not it didn't make me laugh, but it got me sad and then also cathartic, um, was a game, a, a video game called Braid. Uh, I'm not familiar. Braid is amazing. Uh, here is one of my insecurities. I have an insecurity about closing doors. I don't like moments where I feel like I, I am cutting off an option to me. I don't, I don't like thinking that I can't go back and change my mind. And uh, when you, That's I, so interesting. When I make big decisions, when I move across the country, or when I break up with a girlfriend, or when i I choose a school over another school or I choose a job over another job uh 
I'm almost never happy about a big decision I make like that. Yeah. I'm frequently either relieved or have buyer's remorse anyway. I was about to say buyer's uh, remorse. And sometimes, even if it's the best decision, even if it's absolutely the best decision, uh, I I frequently have have trouble with it. Yeah. And uh, Braid is a video game where the main gameplay mechanic is being able to turn back time. Uh, so you're it's a side-scroller where you're trying to just get over certain obstacles, and and if you hit the space bar, it literally rewinds time. And there become times throughout the game where other things continue to move forward and you move back in time, but the way you solve... The first level or two, you're just going across the map, and if you mess up and you die, you hit the space bar and you go back in time and you try again. But it quickly becomes the case that... Uh, the gameplay mechanic, the, the the way that you solve the puzzles is by playing with time. And because closing doors and, and going back and changing decisions is so deep in my insecurity, I cried playing that game. And it was it's one of the most amazing artistic experiences I've had up there with uh, Bo Burnham and, and Louis and Bojack Horseman. Yeah. Uh, and so I have, I have, this is, uh, the Jonathan Blow, who wrote that game, who designed that game, uh, said, has said in interviews that, you know, what you do if you want to make good art is you take the things that are deep, deepest in you and most insecure and, uh, you turn those into your art. And I do think that that's one of the best ways of, of making art. I think it was. I think John Lovick said to me at some point, uh, "The audience admires you for what you can do, but they relate to you f- because of your flaws." Um, I butchered that. If he has crafted it better than than I have, those are not the words he said, but the sentiment is there that uh, they'll they'll admire you for being able to do magic, for being expert in something, but they 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 don't relate to you for being able to do magic because most of them can't do magic. And, None of us can do magic. Uh, but they will relate to you because you are flawed and they can see that and they relate to that. And so uh, uh, Make Happy has this wonderfully deep moment that I, I would love to emulate in magic and have not yet figured out how to do. Uh, but that, you know, I, I look... When, whenever I'm able to accomplish a goal in Magic, I look for the next one. And uh, the trick we were talking about just a little bit ago with uh, the, the coincidence that you know can't happen, the true magician in trouble thing was, uh, was a goal of mine for a long time. And I accomplished that, and I, the next one is, is this emotional piece that yeah. you know I may or may not ever accomplish, but is, is the next piece of it. I will say, the goal immediately previous to... Uh, the Magician in Trouble one, was, came from Steve Martin. Uh, I also highly recommend that you read Born Standing Up. You have so much homework coming out of this podcast. Uh, but Thanks, Born, Professor. Yeah, but Born Standing Up... That's an easy read. Is an easy read. It's great. Yeah. Um, you can read and, it in three hours. And he talks about being a magician and working at the magic shop in Disneyland and uh, how it informed his comedy... But the thing that I loved was that he self-consciously erased punchlines 
from his comedy. He, he, he saw that, in sort of like the rule of three, set up uh, reinforcement subversion. Yeah. Uh, and the subversion is the punchline. And he said, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to tell jokes where people will laugh and there is no punchline. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get his sort of long, rambling uh, banjo things and, uh, and his jokes that sort of go on and on and on and, and have this rolling laughter of like people realizing at different times that he's not going to finish on time. Yeah. Uh, and so actually the trick I did before, or the trick I talked about before um, that I used to set up out of this world where I just do the call and then I, per, having pretended to memorize the order of the red, black, red, black throughout the deck, I actually just show a bunch of red cards in a row. Um, was in my was one of my attempts to do that where uh, everyone in the audience is everyone in the audience realizes at a different time what the effect is. Yeah, some of them realize it after I turn over three cards because they actually remember what the top three cards are on the deck. But most people remember realize what's going on after five, six, seven, eight cards when they know it can't possibly have had yeah ten red cards on top of the deck. And so you get this rolling discovery of what the magic trick is that I find very satisfying as a performer to watch uh, develop over, a, especially a larger audience, but even a, even just a couple of people. This also it. reminds me of the thing that... Uh, the instance that I'm thinking of is in The Simpsons where, like, the, the old crotchety farmer character is out in a field and he steps on a rake, and it comes up and he hits him in the face, and then he, like, stumbles around and turns around and steps on another rake, and it comes up and hits him in the face, and he stumbles back from that, and it, he steps on a rake, and it comes up and hits him in the face, and it does that for 17 seconds. Yeah. I So, so it's funny, car- less funny, not funny at all, hilarious, exactly. hilarious, hilarious, hilarious. I... I th- there are a lot of examples of this, especially in cartoons. Mm-hmm. Um, Simpsons does it well there. <coughs> Family Guy does it a ton. Yeah. Um, I mean, the chicken fights between Peter and the chicken mm-hmm. are are this are the the it's apotheosis just the of this of moment. Absurdity. Yeah. yeah. Or like uh, the famous moment in Family Guy where Peter clutches his knee for like 20 minutes yeah that or the frog when he's trying to get the frog out of Chris's room right like if you if you watch Family Guy you know these references and they are just way too long for for the moment but they become funny because they're way too long yeah I personally credit Steve Martin with being responsible for that style of humor and and moving forward I have no idea whether that's correct or not yeah um but he he's the earliest popularization of, of that kind of thing that I'm aware of. Uh, and someone will correct me if I'm We wrong. are not experts on this. No. Yeah. But it but it it I I learned about it from, from Steve Martin mm-hmm. uh, and have brought it into my magic a lot because I, I like I like killing the magic moment in the same way that he <laughs> that he killed the punchline. Yeah. Um and I actually like doing it because um for for a couple of reasons, one I find it academically interesting to mm-hmm. to as a just a experiment to do. Yeah. But I actually bizarrely, even though I love being on stage, even though like 
my animating force in life is frequently to be on stage in front of people and yeah. expressing myself. I, I love that. But I find magic sometimes is very hard because it it feels dirty or it feels egotistical when you reveal the magic moment. Uh, you know, I was talking with someone critiquing another magic show that we saw um, and the critique was that the, the magician, every time the magician performed, it felt like, um, here's the card, you're welcome. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, sort of like, I am the magnanimous magician who will now bequeath upon you the this wonderful moment of awesomeness and you may all bow at my feet. Yeah. And, uh, and it, you know... So you didn't like my show? Right, exactly. <laughs> no, it's... It, yeah. It's it's hard. I I feel uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah. In that moment, because you want to build this moment so to have the maximum impact on your audience, but then, but then you turn the card over it. and it's just this like whoosh of of feeling like uh you know you're welcome and I don't I don't want that because I don't want uh, I want us all to be on the same team experiencing a wonderful thing and not to have and like I want to be a center of attention because I like being center of attention but of I, I don't want to I don't want it to feel like uh, I want it to feel like I'm sharing something not that I am bequeathing something to the mass like to the lowly masses yeah, yeah. I want it I want it to be um, people interested me being the center of attention because I have something valuable to share that I am sharing with people that they appreciate and that I appreciate and that we are together in that moment yeah. not that not that I'm passing down the tablets from on high so uh Steve Martin inspired me to try to do that in part by destroying any magic moment entirely. So in that trick that I described earlier, uh, there, it can't possibly be a moment of uh, your welcome because there's no moment because everyone figures it out at a different time. Yeah. And you see it ripple through the crowd as people are, are recognizing it. But while they're recognizing it, I'm still saying, and there's a red card, and there's a red card, and there's two more red cards, and there's another red card. And I, I'm not acknowledging that any magic has happened at all. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's a it's an interesting place to be. It's not the strongest trick I do. Yeah. Um, but it is a really interesting piece of texture in the show, I think. Uh, and it is, um, it is fun to do because I get to reveal... A, a compelling and interesting magic effect without really having to take credit for it, but in a way that people accept as normal. Yeah. I I think it's interesting because it is... The sub, it is a subversion, you know? Yeah. You, no magic moment is in, in and of itself a magic moment. You're going to have to unpack that one. Okay. So you have the setup, you have the, uh, the, I, I don't know why I'm blanking on this word, again. Turn. No. <laughs> the prestige. Uh, the setup, then you have the reinforcement, then you have yeah. the subversion, right? So, the subversion is not linked to, in this effect that we're talking about, the subversion is not linked to your setup and your reinforcement for this thing. The subversion is linked to all magic. You're subverting all magic. So it's still a 
punchline, even though it happens at different times. But it's I'm, like a, yeah, I'm subverting the structure yeah. of magic in the same way that Steve Martin was subverting the structure, the structure of, of a joke, yeah. which requires set up punchline. Yeah. I am subverting the structure of but magic, all the magic, which requires before that is the setup and reinforcement. Right. And then because you that, you, yeah. Because uh, who is as Ascanio who defines magic as. Uh, an initial condition and an end condition with no explanation in between. Yeah. Um, I am subverting that definition by having there effectively be no moment of revealing the end, the end condition. Yeah. I mean, it's still, it's still, the trick still fits that definition because there's still an initial point and an end point and, uh, no explanation in between. Yeah. But it, uh, there's no, there's no moment of revealing it. Yeah. Uh, because, in the same way that there is in, in almost every magic trick that has ever existed, and in most magic tricks that I do. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> there was nothing after that. But I was just, that was a but as if I was going to have something else to say, and then I did not. <laughs> and then I, uh, yeah. Well, you subverted my expectation. I did. I like. And it. then I and then I made a mistake, and I picked up the prop instead of and we pushing forward, it, yeah. and we named it. That's right. And I yes handed. Um, okay. We've done two hours. I'm not saying we have to finish. I have things that I still want to ask you. Hey, so so ask me, let's talk about it, and then you can edit out the boring stuff. Yeah, okay. We'll cut it down to a tight 20. Yeah, That's exactly. my stock line. Um, okay, you're not going to burn the bit. We talked about... So, okay, we, we, we skirted on it, but we never really got to, which is the meta part of the magic you did. So I think we got close to that just now. Um, I mean, I think... I think the meta part, part of the meta let's, part of the magic I do is... Let's explain to the non-nerds who also inexplicably are magicians what, what you mean when we say meta magic or meta comedy. Is uh, it sure. Yeah, meta... In this context, meta effectively means self-referential. Yeah. Uh, it, it is... I'll, I'll, it's taking a step back and uh, taking a broader perspective on, on the thing. Commentary on the commentary. Yeah. or. Uh, when 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 it's self-aware, yeah, uh, that's that's not the entire definition of meta, but it, for our purposes in talking about meta magic, it's it's close enough. So imagine that you are in a conversation with someone, and you you you're talking to them, and you run out of things to say, and the conversation stagnates. And then imagine that you are watching this happen from outside. What is the version of you outside thinking? What would they say about the situation happening in front of them? And then whatever that is, you say it in that moment. It's, yeah. The, the best, way, what, best example of meta, maybe, for this kind of purpose okay, yeah. is... Is it Dr. Horrible? Maybe. There is some wonderful show where if you buy the DVD, there's a director's commentary. Mm-hmm. And then there's a director's commentary about the director's commentary. <laughs> and you can, you can watch the movie where the audio track is not there, and it's only the director's, comedy, the, the, the director's commentary audio track. But then on top of that, there's another track where they're commenting on how well they did the director's commentary. That's meta. Okay. Uh, I, but I, so I think... The trick we were just talking about, where uh, I'm killing the punchline, is fairly meta. 
because it, it's it's meta without being explicit about being meta. Mm-hmm. It is uh, at some point as I'm revealing more and more red cards from the top of the deck, the audience knows and I know that I'm not actually having memorized the deck, that this is a magic trick, that I've separated the red cards and the black cards, but neither of us is acknowledging that, and uh, by continuing to show more and more red cards, I'm act- I, even though I'm saying things that make it sound like I'm continuing the memorization plot, yeah. I'm actually underscoring how... The, the, the real trick is that there are more and more red cards than that could possibly have been there based on a shuffle. Yeah. So it, it is, sounds a, like it is an being, unspoken commentary. Yeah, it sounds like you're being obviously ironic where everyone right. sees that, but no one is uh, commenting on it. Right. Yeah. Now, there are much more obvious and much more explicit ways in which I do very meta magic. Uh, one thing I do a lot of is I talk about magic and magicians for lay audiences. Uh, I do a spelling trick, which is inspired by a Tyler Wilson spelling trick, uh, where Tyler Wilson hates spelling tricks, and so he he does a spelling trick that makes fun of other spelling tricks. Uh, and my presentation is even more explicit about it than Tyler's. I start out by saying, I'm going to do a spelling trick. No one has any idea what a spelling trick is. Raise your hand in this room right now if you know what a spelling trick is. And a couple of people will always raise their hand, and I will always say, now we can see where the magicians in the room are. Because mm-hmm. none of the laymen, none of the non-magicians have any idea what a spelling trick is. And then I explain what it is, and then I talk openly about the things I don't like about spelling tricks, the things that I think make no sense about spelling tricks. And in the process of doing that, I actually am doing effectively doing a spelling trick. I'm having yeah. people deal down cards based on the number of letters in particular words um, while I'm explaining weaknesses of the trick, and then at the end it reveals the selections and, and the trick is over. But the presentation is about a weakness in a, a frequently used plot by magicians. And I think that a lot of laymen are actually very interested in sort of the world of sleight-of-hand magicians, not the world of magic, the Harry Potter-style real magic powers world, but the the world of of sleight-of-hand conjuring magicians who are coming up with interesting ways to fool people. Uh, People are really interested in that, and I find that if I talk about that, a lot of people will come along with me for the ride and and will enjoy it. So I that's a one good example. Uh, I I do some uh, the one we talked about before as well, where I am magician in trouble is another great example because the the way I get out of that in the in the moment where in the moment where the audience believes that I have messed up the trick and they're wondering how I'm going to get out of it because there's a face-down card, a single face-down card on the table, and they know it can't be the selection because they've just seen me holding the selection and they're not the same card. Uh, I say to the audience, well, on the upside, you get to see a trick that I've never done before. Yeah. Uh, and that is self-commentary. That is, uh, it is interesting to see how a magician gets out of this conundrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, I have to say, when I'm, when I'm doing walk-around and, and people come up to me 
or talk to me after I've done a, a set, one of the most frequently asked questions is, do you ever mess up? Yeah. And my response is always, yes, absolutely, I mess up. Jugglers drop, actors forget their lines, and I mess up. Uh, and then I have a trick that I do that is an example of messing up, where I have them select a card, and I purposefully throw it away, and then I figure out, I explain that I have to now figure out how I'm going to make this trick work, even though I the thing I was going to do doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And that's great, because they've actually genuinely asked the question, and I have an answer for them in the form of, of a magic trick. Yeah. And, and frequently that can be cheesy, but in this example, I give them the honest answer first, um, and then I say, here's an example of what might happen, and then I, I show them actually what might happen, and then I come, come out of it, and, it, and it, I resolve it with a magic trick, and, and they get both an explanation that is genuine and a magic trick at the same time without wasting any time and hopefully without coming off as cheesy. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, th- I think people find that interesting, and I, I love talking about pulling back, pulling back the curtain and talking about the creative process and talking about um, doing magic and talking about... Cr- uh, messing up and, and those kinds of things. And, and again, we'll come back to Bill Burnham does this very well. He, he talks in his show about um, coming up with jokes and, and feeling, un- in, in Make Happy, he talks about feeling unqualified to talk about anything other than performance and that he ended up doing a lot of performance about performance because that's what he knew and people came along with him and he's appreciated that. And I'm, yeah. I'm sort of in the same vein of... Uh, what I know is magic and performance and I'm going to perform about magic and performance and hopefully some people will come along with me yeah. and, and uh, it's it's worked well for me mm-hmm. it, and it works well in my I think in San Francisco it works particularly well in New York it works particularly well because they have uh, there are clientele there who are predisposed to like that kind of thing yeah. um, it may not work in every market but it, it has worked really well for me yeah uh, this is related to a thing that uh, Tangentially, that I'll that I'll say, which is, um, people are fascinated by sleight of hand in a way that some people are fascinated by the possibility of real magic. But I think that there are a lot more people who are fascinated by the idea of sleight of hand, and I think it comes from having a glowing box in all of our pockets that can basically do magic. Yeah, like we can if if I want a book. I type a couple of things into the glowing box in my pocket and two days later it shows up at my doorstep. And yeah. uh, I know how some of those things work, but, you know, if I didn't, that would be fucking magic. Yeah. Uh, so w- magic happens every day to people, but it happens with technology. Technology is the means of accomplishing magic in our world. Um or at least inexplicable, impossible-seeming things in our world. And uh, I don't like Emerson that much, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, but he has a wonderful line that is um, something to the effect of... I sing the body electric. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, no, it's... it's um, Humanity has built a chariot and lost the use of its feet. Which is to say... We've built technology, but we've forgotten how to do anything analog anymore. Yeah. And people are really fascinated by magicians who do things analog, who do amazing, miraculous-seeming things with no technology. And this is why 
I avoid as much overt technology in my work as possible. Uh, I don't I don't do almost any app tricks on with a phone. I don't do uh, and any I try to do, avoid anything with my with my own phone. Sometimes maybe with their phone. Usually only as a video recorder or a camera. Um, but even then, I think that is diluted a little bit. I talked earlier about the um, passcode trick that I that I like, but I use that. I never use that in, in paid performance. That's only for friends yeah. or for for casual acquaintances, because otherwise, it, it uh, people will just assume it's technology. But people are fascinated if you can do something without assistance. Yeah. And you know, people don't believe me when I talk about that in magic, but. Uh, my family took a trip to Spain. That's however long ago we went to Toledo, where it used to be the fact that Toledo made all of the swords for the Spanish army when armies fought with swords. And today there is literally one hand forged sword maker in Toledo. Only one. And Toledo has billion sword shops, but they're all factory made. There's one real, true hand-forging sword guy, and he only hand-forges a month out of the year when it's so cold that the fire doesn't make him uncomfortable. And he makes a billion swords in that month, and then the rest of the month he's just around and talking. But people walk in there, and they're fascinated, and they talk to him for hours and hours and hours because he does something with his hands. Yeah that no one can do anymore. I think we're experiencing a re- renaissance appreciation of analog. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. yes, I think that's absolutely absolutely right in art. Yeah. Um, or in niche market. Uh, people they will well, I mean, you look at you look at you look at fashion, you look at you know, anything that you can buy now, there's a Handcrafted, right. made in the USA. This thing, that thing, you know. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah, but there's a. I think there is a, a fascination with it, that will. I, I I'm skeptical that it will, come back to be a dominant market. Yeah. Um. I mean, there are areas in which it has like. Oh, I see what you mean. Right. Like. Yeah. I, I think coffee is actually a good example of where it has, made a big surge back. I mean. Yeah. Uh a lot of people really care about their coffee yeah. and want it to be the the difficult slow slower Single process origin manual and, right yeah. and not Starbucks uh, but so but I don't think there's any way that the handcrafted coffee no matter how uh, no matter how many people get dedicated to it it's just not going to make a, a dent in in the Starbucks Pete's world yeah. ever again but uh the world is so interconnected now that you can find your audience wherever it is. Yeah. And that's true of handcrafted coffee. Oh, when people seek it out, it's true of this sword maker in Toledo. And I think it's true in magic. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, lots of people out there will do great pieces of magic with technology. Uh, but I don't, and I'm very open about the fact that it's sleight of hand and the, and I can't tell you how many times someone will call me and book me to do a performance telling me we're really looking for someone who can perform for this 
audience of engineers. We want someone who can break it down and show them what's behind the scenes. We want someone who um, isn't going to patronize, patronize them. them. Uh, and especially here in the Bay Area, that happens a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've found a niche of people who will, who will seek me out um, because they don't, they don't want to hire the guy who claimed they don't want to hire a wizard. They yeah. don't want to hire someone in a pointy hat and suns and moons and blue velvet. They want to hire the guy who's going to come and blow our minds and admit who's that it's going to be like them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, people appreciate the analog and uh, people will, f- and, and if there is a They're market for the thing you want, curious. people yeah. will find it. It's a great it's a great time for art. It's a boom, really, for for the for self expression. What was I Paul Wilson shared an article today from like artuniverse.com. I'm probably getting that wrong. But it was um it was about how individualism has become the new commodity is the word that's in my head but that's not the word but it's it's become such a powerful force in society the the sense of individualism and how uh you know everyone's thoughts and feelings are important and ought to be expressed and so that's great for art as a society it it can be difficult to Move forward. That was the argument of the article. Yeah, I, I, so I think this is a... There are a lot of people who are making this point, mm-hmm. and people make it better or worse. Uh, Bill Burnham makes the point in his In Make Happy to some extent as well, and I have always gravitated towards the version of this thought, which is um, millennials in which I include myself yeah. uh, have grown up in an in an era that was sufficiently easy for most of us to grow up uh, in terms in strictly in terms of like most of us didn't fight in a major war or didn't have to there was no draft yeah uh, most of us didn't go through um, a, a giant depression or or were not affected by the giant recession because most of us were too young when it happened to have been uh, to to have to have been the most one of our parents were already who were worried financially about it. stable because of our, the huge growth and yeah so our, our parents were financially stable or even if they weren't even if, even if the great recession hurt someone badly yeah. it was the it was our parents yeah who who were stressed about it yeah and it w- and we were too young to have responsibility for it mm-hmm. so we've we've grown up in an era um, where we've largely been comfortable and uh, everyone is taught to express themselves and and we haven't needed to uh buckle down and solve a world problem in a in in a societal collapse kind of way in the, in the way that many other generations have so we've developed we'll buckle up yes yes <laughs> um our time is coming but uh, you know, we as a result, we were all raised with this individualism and express yourself. And everyone in our culture has become a performer. Everyone, yeah. Instagram is performance. Twitter is performance. YouTube is clearly performance. Yeah. Uh, and Facebook is clearly a performance. We're all performing our lives to everyone. 
Uh, and I find that fascinating. Uh, I find it challenging as a magician or as a performer trying to get an audience to, to, to find a, a following of people who care about what I'm doing as opposed to what everyone else is doing. It's, there's so much signal or so much noise um, how to get my piece of it to be considered signal yeah. by enough people um, is a challenge. On the other hand, uh, the fact that there are so many people who are just performers, so much performance, there's also an increasing, uh, a, a corresponding increase in consumption of performance. So there's there's just more audience there than there has been in the past. Uh, but it's certainly true that uh, it is a boon time for art and for performance. It is more of it exists, more of it is being consumed, and people are more appreciative of it uh, as a result of that. Yeah. Uh, people people seek it out uh, because they have to now. Because it, it used to be that there was little enough of it that uh, relative a relatively small number of people could curate it for everyone. Sure. Theater. You know, there were touring casts and you saw whatever came by. Uh, and there were four TV channels for whatever, however length, whatever length of time um, that existed. And so, you know, the four TV stations could curate what got to be on TV. And now everyone has access to everything. And there, there are no more default bottlenecks in the same way. And so everyone has, everyone has to, and does go out and seek the thing they want. Yeah. Um, So it, it, it is good. It is a good time because people are, if, People are looking, and someone, if you've got something... You if someone is interested it. in the thing you're doing, they'll find you. Yeah. As long as you're loud enough. We're good enough. And doggone it. People will like you. <laughs> um, you're a progressive chap. I, okay, yes. <laughs> uh, what can we do about incorporating more women into the magic community. Moving forward, I mean, like, what sure. what can we do as a generation amongst ourselves right now so that down the line there will be 20% more female magicians? I think it's hard. I think it's, I think it's really a challenge. Well, uh, if it were easy, it wouldn't yeah, be worth discussing. No, of course. Uh, no, I know. But, yeah. it's, but it's a challenge because um, it, it almost feels like uh, reaching directly for that goal isn't isn't the best thing to do. That, I agree. That, yeah. That figuring out um, that that diagnosing and then solving the underlying more granular issues is a better way of going about it than to say uh, how do we get more women in magic? Because we, if we just reach out to more women who could become magicians, uh, then. I, I think we're going to run into the same problems that currently exist, yes. and that and that we won't we won't solve the problem. We'll just we'll we'll be looking like we're trying to solve the problem, but we won't actually be solving I agree. the problem. Yeah, we're treating a symptom and not. Uh, yeah, yeah. If effective, yeah. or we're, we're trying to solve the 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 super the superficial layer without addressing. Yes, the no, I agree. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Is like, what can we do right now? We have to change the culture of magic. Um, which is hard to do because magicians aren't ma- ma- real like performing magicians or real 
uh, serious hobbyist magicians are not in entire control of what constitutes the magic culture. Yeah. Uh, and when you have something like the game, the book, the game, have um, the recommendation that you learn a magic trick to pick to pick up women, and then the rest of the book is, uh, you know, absolute garbage, trash. Well, yeah, just yeah. disgusting. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, I mean, look, and like some some of the things in that book are are like common sense advice on being an interesting person. Yeah. Um, some of the, but, but the, the conceit of the book that, uh, that you can women, trick women, right. That you, that you can trick women into liking you or that, that women are a, are a goal to, or there are a target of conquest is pretty disgusting. Yes. Uh, but, and, and so when you wrap like magic into that, yeah, it becomes really problematic. I went on a date however long ago, um, with someone who thought it was interesting that I was a magician and I, I made, I don't know, I made some comment that she thought sounded like something from the game, and she was like, look, you do magic, and you made this comment, and, uh, like, what's the deal? Yeah. And, I, and having not, like, literally not knowing what's in the book, I had to just be like, nope, I just like doing magic, and I think it's great. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I think that... And I am also interesting genuinely. <laughs> right, and, I, and hopefully I'm also interesting genuinely. Yeah. Uh, but but the thing is, you know, we're not in control of that piece of the culture. But I think we have to change um, the way that magic culture works because uh, magicians I respect, other, magicians I other certainly otherwise respect, uh, frequently say that something like, "This is the trick I do to pick up women." Yeah. And uh, this is the trick I do to get a woman's number. Yeah. Uh, and that's insane. Yeah. Um, that's offensive and insane. It you know uh, why talk about it educate people. Yeah, so that because uh, you're if you if you are if you are the person yeah. who looks who, who says if you are the person who looks down on magicians and be like oh you just learned magic because you had no social skills and you and like when you were ten you couldn't interact with anyone so you just had to learn a magic trick to to talk with someone and you think that but you also need to learn a magic trick to talk to girls, then you're the person you're making fun of. Yeah. Uh, and if you, are, if you are tricking a woman into uh, doing anything for you, whether it's giving you their number or spending extra time with you, then you're doing it wrong. Uh, yeah. if, if your object is conquest, then you don't understand the point of a relationship. It, it you know... It's that's literally if objectification. Are, right. Yeah. That is literally objectification. Quite quite literally. Yeah. If you if you do magic and that makes you an interesting person and someone you find attractive wants to spend time with you because you're an interesting person and part of why you're an interesting person is that you do magic. Great. Awesome. You've done a good job. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, that has worked for me in the past as well. I, there are, are lots of women as there are lots of men who really enjoy magic and if someone finds out that you are a magician and they want to talk to you about it then great yeah. but if you are um, if if doing magic is a weapon in your tool belt of hunting women then stop it uh, just yeah, yeah just stop it just stop it's um, if you are hunting weapons right that that's the problem yeah, yeah not just that magic is a weapon yeah uh, yes and I think the. Um, I want to say we don't have to get into why, but 
you are uniquely qualified in a way that a lot of people are not to talk on this topic. I feel. I think, well, I don't know if that's true. Okay. I, I think I, th- I think any of us are equally qualified to... This is this. The, now you've gotten into a, a deeper philosophical argument on my part, which is that uh, everyone has to be engaged on the conversation in order to solve it. Yes, uh, I agree. Fe- I feminism agree. is not a women's issue, and LGBT rights is not a, a LGBT issue. issue and, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I understand, and I agree, but Racist, to the people... Yes, I agree. But to the people listening, they go, why does he think he can say? Because uh, we do. We should, are acknowledging right now that we are two you should all listen straight to, white men. Yeah, yeah. Well. Right. And, you, yeah. and yeah. You, should, you should all listen to Dan Savage, who is a wonderful podcasting column and yes. is a, a sex and relationship advice columnist, uh, who, when asked what qualifies you to give advice, his response is always, because people listen. Yeah. Uh, nothing qualifies me to be a sex and relationship columnist. I am a sex and relationship columnist because you read my column and listen to my podcast. And uh, the same is, I think the same is true here. Uh, I, I have strong opinions. Yeah. Uh, and I will try to convince you that they're right. Yeah. But we are all part of the conversation yes. and we are all qualified to participate in it. If you disagree, great. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that hopefully we'll be able to convince you that the right and true path is is the one of actually caring about other people um, <laughs> and not treating them as objects. Yes. And, you know, imagine... And that's why you're uniquely qualified, is because you believe the right thing. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's turtles all the way down. And you have the ability to convince people of it. Hopefully. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the main point here is, is that um, both because magicians do it and because out, people outside the world of magic do this, uh, magic has a uh, has a reputation for being a tool to get women, uh, and if we reinforce that, then women will not join magic because it is it is a culture that that objectifies women, and women will not want to be a part of a culture uh, in which they are not welcome as humans. Uh, yeah. And as as equal partners and as as people with equal potential. Uh, And the next problem is role models, and we've talked about that. Uh, I also think that there's a lot of problematic gender role issues in performance as well. Yes. Uh, You know, like, there's a sensitive subject surrounding who is the right person to bring up on stage in a performance? And 90% of DVDs out there uh, will, you know, people, uh, the magician will start by saying like, oh, I really, I always use a woman for this. Uh, And, you know, you can see Aziz Ansari have a wonderful, like, 10-minute piece on how black people react to magic. And uh, certainly there are stereotypes that... uh, that exist that people, some people believe in, and some people don't believe in. That that are that hold true sometimes and don't hold true other times. Uh, and when you're a performer, you work with the reality of the situation. And when you are choosing a spectator, you work based on heuristics that, for better or worse, are not always true for a particular individual, but can be statistically more likely uh, in certain circumstances. 
And that is a reality that we are all faced with and that is sometimes uncomfortable, but can be handled better or worse. Yes. And once the person is on stage with you, they are no longer a statistic. They are now a, a person. And Aussie Wind speaks to this very well. He does a great job, I think, of making it clear that whenever he brings a spectator up, no matter who they are, they are on stage so that he can share something with them personally. Not so that they can be a prop. Yeah. And uh, there's a combination here of most magicians treat their spectators like props. Most magicians bring women up on stage, not exclusively, but majority. And as a result, audiences see magicians treat women like props. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's intentional. Uh, by most people. It's, some, it's intentional by some people, but I don't think it's intentional by most people. I think it is an accident of the statistics of the reality of performance and reaction and um, a lack of thought about how to treat the people who come up on stage or who are uh, participating in a trick. And as I was about to say, who are you using in a trick? Yeah. Which, you know, is common parlance in our world. Yeah. You, you use this person for a trick. Uh, and and the fact that we phrase it that way is probably part of the problem. They, yeah. We shouldn't... It, it is true that you need to use the person for the trick, that they need to pick a card, that they need to remember it, that uh, they need to follow your directions, and if they don't, then the trick will not work. Yeah. Uh, but And, and as, as useful as that is when you're crafting a trick or when you're practicing a trick, when you're performing a trick, yeah. uh, I think it is not useful to think of the spectator in that way. As part of the method. As, as part of the method. Yeah. They should be the person that you're sharing something with. And, you know, we've talked about self-expression here and how important that can be for magic and how important it should be for magic. Uh, if, if you are expressing yourself to someone or if you're expressing or sharing a thing with whoever your spectator is, uh, treat them like someone you are sharing something with and treat them like some someone you are excited to uh, share with. Treat them like a person that you are excited uh, you get to share this thing with. You have the ability to give this person an amazing experience that they may or may not, but probably will not forget right. for the rest of their life. Yeah, you should hopefully. Cher you should like honor that. And if you treat them as part of the method, then that will read to everyone else who is in the room. Uh, and everyone else who is watching you perform, and they become a they become another prop like anyone else, and uh, like like they get, they become another prop like anything else, like your cards or your coins. Yeah. Um. And it it takes effort to change that. Yeah. It, it is very easy to treat a person like a prop because they need to do X, Y, and Z. And those are required for the trick. So if you can successfully perform the trick, then they are doing that. It is very hard to think about the extra things you have to do to make the person a part of the show and a part of the sharing and not just the bare minimum required for the trick. Yeah. Uh, also think pretty carefully about who you bring up on stage and why and how you treat those people um, with respect and how you treat those people with respect to their gender and your gender. Uh, uh, you know there are and and how you present. We talked early on in tonight about acknowledging to the audience how they perceive you early on. Yeah, 
And I think a lot of magicians don't have a great sense of how they come off to other people. This is especially true for people who have been performing a long time and who don't recognize that the way they've come across has changed. Yeah. Uh, You've got to maintain self-awareness. Yeah. So if you are, uh, if you used to be uh, a well-built, handsome dude and you would treat everyone with uh, class and respect and you would, you know, bring a woman up and kiss her hand very sort of uh, with distance and you would uh, doff your hats to the man and, and take very traditional gender roles, but everything was clearly done with respect. And you continue to do those things um, when you're much older, they will come off as different and, and can come off as uh, sleazier or less sincere uh, depending on how you present to the audience. Similarly, if you learned uh, a certain level of comfort with the people who come up, who you bring up on stage, because when you started performing, you were twelve, um, and you were just, and you just could not possibly have come off as a threat because you're you're twelve, and you play it, you 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 occupy a very different space in in your audience's mind than a twenty five, thirty, or forty five year old. Um, you need to be aware that when you become 25 or 30 or 35, that uh, you are not insulated by the uh, childish innocence that you had when you were 12. Yeah. And the the level of closeness and contact you can have as a 12-year-old that does not come off as creepy is, is um, much higher than the level of closeness that you can have that won't come off as creepy when you're 25. Yeah. And uh, that especially plays out when the people who are on the stage look to be in the gender roles of someone who could have um, a romantic interaction. Yeah. However that happens to be and in whatever context that is. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, the hard part about this is I don't know what the answer is to what you can really do. I don't have concrete evidence by, or concrete advice. The concrete advice is you have to think about it. Yeah. And you have to think about it from the perspective of how people are seeing you and not from the perspective of what's in your head. Because if you get up there and you say, well, I sincerely think this, that's great. But if the audience in seeing you has a different impression, that's the message you're conveying and the piece of the culture of magic you're, you're contributing. Yeah. It's, it's what people see that contributes to the culture of magic, not the thing that is in your head. Yeah, it goes back to being on the same page as the audience. Absolutely. And I think that that's an important thing for people to think about in the current socio-political climate is that most theater-enjoying people are progressive in a way that if you demean anybody as an object, they will be overtly offended by that and you will lose the audience. And this comes back to an interesting convergence of art and politics. Because a lot of people have been talking about political correctness in performance. Uh, a lot of comedians have been railing against it mm -hmm. or um, lamenting and uh, being sad about the way that progressive colleges are treating comedians. Yeah. Uh, my perspective is this. As an artist, if you decide to be offensive, that go, you know, great. 
you've decided to take the offensive route, and your character is that you are offensive, and you want to be on stage and um, do with that what you will. There are some phenomenal comedians out there, who and and magicians too, um, who get up on stage and do things that are offensive, and that people love them for it. Uh, yeah. Anthony Jeselnik is an incredibly offensive comedian who is very funny, um, despite that. And, and His intentionality is clear, though. And Louis C.K. is another example of if if you listen to the words he's saying, they're frequently incredibly offensive. Yeah. But Bill is, Burr is another Bill example. Burr. Yeah. But it is clear with all three of those people, mm-hmm. uh, no one comes away from their show thinking that they are since that they sincerely believe the offensive things that they said. They're, they make clear with their affect and with the context that although they are saying offensive things, they don't mean offense to people. Yeah. And uh, that is very, very hard to do. That is very hard to do. Uh, those three people and a number of others, um, frequently Amy Schumer, yeah. uh, do that well. Yeah. Uh, Many, many, many more people do it poorly. Yes. Uh, the second piece of that is if you are going to choose that route and be the offensive comedian or magician, acknowledge that people will be offended. Yeah. And if people express that they are offended, don't shame them for being offended. You have chosen to be offensive. You are going to offend people. That is the thing you have chosen to do. If you, it is your right to get on stage and, and be artistically offensive, it is their right to be in an audience and be offended by the thing you have chosen to do, which you have consciously chosen to be offensive. Yes. Uh, and You can't be offensive if people aren't offended. Right. Yeah. Or at least you can't be offensive if, if uh, there's not a quote-unquote party line of that should be offensive. Yeah. Well, it's if a tree falls in the forest. Right. Uh, so, you know, as a, as a performer, I am not saying that everyone needs to be politically correct. I am not saying that everyone needs to uh, conform to the same rules. What I am saying is that you need to be intentional about it, and you need to be conscious of it, and you especially need to understand how the things you are saying and the actions you are taking are perceived by the audience, and how they will be interpreted by the audience, and whether that is in fact what you want. Yeah. So what do we do about women? <laughs> uh, you think about it more, but uh, I, the other, I guess, you know what? The number one thing that you and I can do today yeah. is to call people out. Yeah. When, it ha- when something happens and it is offensive, or when someone uh, makes a comment that they don't understand the implication of, yeah. or when they make a comment they do understand the implication of, but uh, you think you can convince them, you think there is a chance that you can convince them uh, that there is a better way yeah. to not let it slide. And this is actually, I, th- I think, where we started, yeah. right? The very beginning yeah. is uh, the way we all improve yeah. is not by walking away and saying, hey, that was great, but by saying... Some of that was great, and some of it could use improvement, and here's what I think you could improve on. Not that sucked, because yeah. that's not helpful, and, yeah. not, and, and, and people can't improve based upon you that sucked. Yeah. But 
here's the thing I did not like, here is the reason I did not like it, and if you can do it, here is the way to improve it. So I'm going to take that framework and apply that to calling somebody out for being sexist or racist or doing something that is offensive, right? Instead of saying, like, let's say, um, you know, a guy, a, a male magician calls up somebody from the audience and when the, we'll say man in this case, comes up on stage and he speaks with a lisp and the magician calls him a sissy. Alright, now, I have never experienced that as happening. This is an extreme example of something that is possible and that could happen, right? It is quite possible the magician is uh, um, homophobic. But when you're calling someone out, don't call that person the thing that their action was. Don't accuse them of being what the action was. So, like, what you said was racist. What you said was misogynist. What you said was homophobic. Rather than, you're a racist. You're a homophobe. You're sexist. Yeah, or even, I mean... And then explain why. Playing, playing the politics of this is the hardest part. And I don't mean the politics of homophobia or racism yeah, or sexism. I mean the politics of interpersonal relationship between you and the person you are trying to improve. Yes. Uh, frequently I find the best way to pitch that is, are you aware that that statement comes across as homophobic or that statement comes across as sexist or that some of your audience is going to be offended by that because X. Uh, and, you know, they'll they'll take that or they, or they won't. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think... It, it, this all comes back to the fact that the audience's perception is what contributes to the culture of magic. So if you bring someone up on stage and you make fun of them uh, for something that is stereotypically uh, LGBT or stereotypically female as opposed to male or stereotypically male as opposed to female yeah. or stereotypically associated with a, a race um, and you internally sincerely are not Racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever. Yeah. Great. But the fact that it comes across a different way to the audience is, Something if, not, be if not equally important, then very important. Yeah. Substantially important. And, and uh, listening to people, if they tell you that's how it comes across, is important. Yeah. Telling other people how they're coming across, also important. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I think... A really good example of this in magic is John Archer. If you've seen John Archer perform, uh, congratulations, achievement unlocked. If you have not seen John Archer perform, just go Google it. Uh, he is a master in about as many ways as possible. I continue to think that he is one of the most underrated magicians out there. He is, uh, his methods are incredibly devious. He is, uh, he has so much control over his audience. It's just st stunning. Mm -hmm. uh, I recently saw him on a bill, him and three or four other famous magicians, famous in our community magicians, and the other ones who, who were not as frequent performers, uh, you know, left the crowd fairly quiet. And John Archer 
destroyed. jumped on the stage and totally destroyed. He's he's amazing. He also frequently can be quite offensive. Yeah. He does it intentionally. And he uh, he spots the error. He calls out the error sometimes throughout the show. Every once in a while, he will acknowledge that he's being a jerk. Um, he describes his character as the lovable bully. Mm-hmm. Um, lovable is equally important to the bully part. And you, you love him because of his sort of fumbling and he's not, he's not perfect. I think the, another problem with magic is that a lot of magicians want to come off as all-powerful and perfect. And then when you do a thing that is offensive or that, is, that comes off badly, no one's willing to give you slack for it because they haven't seen any of your foibles. On the other hand, John Archer, from the moment he's on stage, even though he is himself the real John Archer, entirely in control of everything that's going on. The character uh, has lots of foibles and lots of, of, um, of flaws. And so when bad things happen or when he steps across the line, people are much more likely to forgive him because they've seen him as human and not as all power and not as claiming to be all powerful or claiming to be entirely in control. Even though, as, as far as I can see it, John Archer, the actual person, is entirely in control. Uh, so he, he is a great example of, of how it is possible to break some of the rules and still contribute positively to the culture of how people perceive magic. Yeah. I would feel bad about calling out people who do that on the negative side. There's two, we can do hypothetical examples more easily. Yeah. Uh, that's the other, I guess that's another thing. Uh, it's it's less useful to call out someone. It's not useful. I, I think agree. period full stop. I agree. To call out someone in public. Yes. Uh, to say this person did a bad thing, everyone shamed them because they're I just going to get defensive and dig in their heels. Really, what you need to do is uh, get over your is uh, egg their car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. It, it, really, what you need to do is, is to get over the fear of. Um, confrontation, which is not to say that it's not valid. Fear of confrontation, everyone has. I mean, I I, I am scared of going up and telling people Very how to improve yeah. how to improve their their show. I talked about that earlier, being uncertain how I wanted to approach Shane um, when my brother had some comments for him, and and sometimes it's a sometimes it's received very well as it as it was with in Shane's case, yeah. and sometimes it's not received so well, and I know that, and so it's it's uncomfortable to approach people. Um, and, and that's totally valid. But if we want to improve our uh, est- the estimation of our group in the world uh, such that we will encourage new people to join and make it a welcoming community for people to join, yeah. uh, then we have to get over the fears that we have and, and address the issues and uh, try to improve ourselves. Yeah. I completely agree. Um, got it. 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 Wouldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Michael. This is the best. Good times had by all.